welcome to Cocktails and Calamity, the show where we get inebriated and discuss the fallout of technology, politics, and the social transformations shaping humanity's global future. And we are live. Welcome to Cocktails and Calamity, the show where we get lit, get comfortable, and discuss the technology, politics, and social transformations shaping humanity's global future. Great to see you, Kristen, and welcome, Chase Oliver. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Just uh, enjoying a lovely evening, uh, a nice Friday night, ready to get the weekend started. Yeah, that's fantastic. And for those of you who don't know, Chase has been on the show before, and Chase was actually uh, ran for a special election uh, in Georgia. You want to tell us a little bit about um, how that came about in your experience, and then we'll hop right into our main topic for the evening. Sure. Yeah. So uh, up until if you can see behind me, it says vote September 29th for Chase Oliver. So up until September the 29th, I was one of seven candidates in the special election to finish the term of the late John Lewis here in the 5th District in Atlanta. Um, Very proud that I was one of two LGBT candidates. Uh, We are the first two LGBT candidates to ever run for that district seat. Uh, I think we might be the first two to ever actually be on general election ballot for uh, Congress. I'm not exactly sure about that. I have to look at that. Um. I did not make the runoff. We have a runoff rule here in Georgia. If you don't make 50% plus one, the top two go into a runoff. So now we have former city councilman Kwanzaa Hall, who was the uh, top vote getter. And in second place was Robert Franklin, who is the former um, president of Morehouse College. He's a minister, very well-known member of the community. So uh, now they will be competing in December to seat for just a few weeks uh, for the remainder of John Lewis's term until January when we seat a new Congress. So um, I was happy to run in. It was a lot of fun, great experience. And uh, yeah, I got a uh, little un- under a thousand votes because it was such a low turnout election, but it I was, was very happy. Turnout. I remember I was tracking it the day and uh, I was rooting for you, man. And it was it's extremely low turnout. Yes. Yeah, so to put it into perspective, um, if you take the top two vote getters in that race, Kwanzaa Hall and Robert Franklin, the two of them combined had less votes than the guy, Barrington Martin, who challenged John Lewis in the primary earlier in the year and was trounced electorally. Like John Lewis got 86% of the voters and like that. So if you want to think about that, wow. um, the entire election pretty much was under not that number. So uh, it was it was a very low turnout. But uh, special elections are often like that. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough with special elections. And also, I mean, it was only how long was the term for? <laughs> See That's my dog. okay. That's all right. <laughs> She wants to get comfortable, but uh, the term would have only been until the end of January uh, when they seat the next Congress. And now after that, it would be whoever wins in the upcoming contest between Nakima Williams, who is a state senator, and uh, Angela Stanton King, who is a member of the King family, which has very deep roots here in the city of Atlanta, of course, and uh, throughout history, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Are you planning on running again or do you have you have political dreams in your future? Where, Where are you at with that? Well, you know, um, as a member, I, I, you know, I ran as a libertarian outside of the two-party system. It's very is, hard to get— Which is a huge lift, right? Yeah, it's hard to get on the ballot. Um, I'm only the second libertarian to ever run for Congress in Georgia, and it's always in special elections because they don't have the signature requirements that are very, very high in Georgia. Mm. Um, we're one of the worst in the nation. But we do have statewide ballot access for all statewide races. And then, of course, you know, if you run for something more local, that signature requirement goes a bit down. So I'm kind of thinking about where— I can be most helpful to the party right. and uh, and where I can make the most impact in a race. Cause really it's all about guiding the discussion and, and putting things where they need to be, you know, uh, talking about issues that you don't really hear other folks talk about. That's what I like to do. Right. 
Which is fantastic. And we need more of that. And I think we're going to get deep into those conversations uh, as we get into this conversation, because not only are we going to be recapping the debate tonight, but we're also going to be talking about, you know, as we approach the election and then, you know, politics in general, how do we get more voices heard? How do we get more people? Um, how do we get better representation in our government? Uh, and I think you're doing some, some great work in Georgia uh, trying to do that. Uh, well, yeah, I'd love to talk about this debate, and we can always talk about how we can add voices to those debates. Uh, that's definitely something that I'm very interested in. And so is the vast majority of the American public, if you believe polling. Yeah, I do. I do. What, what was that, Kristen? You had a... Oh, no, we just brought up the debate. Yeah, so, well, I okay, so let's talk about the debate, because I was actually... Uh, present, pleasantly surprised. So if you if you are um, somebody who's ever studied debate or done debate in high school or college, you know that presidential debates are not real debates. Period. It's all right. it's 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 theater. Um, but those kids we've are seen- remarkable. Those kids are. I'm I'm intimidated by kids who do debate in high school. They're amazing. Oh, for Nothing sure. Nothing like presidential debate. No, no. <laughs> But, you know, seeing the decline, you know, whoever, if you watch the last debate, it, it was rough and it was a significant decline in, um, I, I don't know, what's the word, Everything. civility? I mean, it was just terrible. And I remember when we were watching that, like it was, I wasn't planning on having even a cocktail. And then like after 10 minutes, I was like, oh my God, pour me a glass of wine. This is brutal. Um, but last night wasn't like that. It was much more substantive. I think the questions were good. Um, I think the the moderator, um, Kristen, I can't remember her name. Uh, I'll find she it in a second. But job. I thought, yeah, I thought she was fantastic. Um, you know, and it, it was relatively substantive, and there were there were few interruptions, and I thought that was great. What, what was your what were your guys' takes? Uh, yeah, Kristen Welker did a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. And yeah, as you said, it was much more civil. We could hear people speaking. They weren't speaking over each other. So that actually, you know, you could understand. I feel like a lot of the same topics were covered, but in this debate, you could actually hear answers uh, such as they were um, because they weren't just talking over each other. I do appreciate the muted microphones, the beginning. I think that helped. Um, Honestly, I can say uh, I think Trump behaved himself better. Because he, uh, instead he of just said today, he said, I, I can wait. I wrote it down. I'm able to do different styles. He said, he oh. is that, what, to- <laughs> that, that was his re- that was his reasoning. Yes, well, yes, he can do different styles. And if you noticed, he did not. Um, and, and maybe this is an optics thing. Maybe he was concerned about, you know, he was thinking I can just walk right over Chris Wallace because he's a white guy. But if I if I try to steamroll over a female moderator, I'll become a real jerk. Maybe that went into it. Maybe it was just the negative reaction of that first debate and the need that he's kind of coming from behind. He really needed to hit the knockout punch uh, if you're talking about where they're coming from in this debate. And so maybe he thought a change of tactics would help. I kind of thought, uh, I, I kind of think it did a little bit because instead of cutting off Biden every two seconds, it allowed Biden to speak at length, which can be bad for Biden sometimes. Right. And so I think maybe this was a better strategy for the president to have taken. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And you've hit, you've hit like four different variables that I think all came into play. And, you know, I certainly think that, what was that? Did you hear that? What was that? Who's your son screaming at his video game? 
<laughs> um, I definitely think that it, it was a, a series of things. So number one, you know, you've got Biden leading in most of the national or almost all national polls and in most of the swing states, even if it's just a polling error of three or four points, he's still leading. So Trump had to do something dramatic. And I think he tried to do that in the first debate. And what ended up happening was he pissed off the moderates. Um, he, sh he continued to shore up his base, which he always will do when he's being... Uh, you know, negative and fighting. But I think that, you know, he knew he had to he had to do something different. He had to get more moderate voters. And I think, you know, if his plan was to be more civil and try to at least speak to those moderate voters, I think that he was successful in that. I, yeah, I agree. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was actually pretty funny because right when the debate started, um, I think Trump got the first question and he like his um, uh, energy was it was almost as if he was very uh, nervous. And because he didn't have the ability just to go right after Biden, he was trying to actually speak and answer the question. He was very nervous. The energy was very, um, you know, yeah, he was antsy. Yeah, he was, he was bouncing around a bit. And then Biden was standing there and I looked at you and I was like, God, they must have like given him a massage for the past four hours. He's so calm. He looked like a robot just staring into the camera. Yeah, I think um, I think Biden just was telling himself, like, don't let him get to me. Don't let him get to me. 100%. Because I think that was the negative for Biden in the last debate. It seemed like he was allowing the president to kind of goad him into a fight when he could have stayed clear on his talking points. And Absolutely. you know, if you see in the first debate, at first Biden's not really talking over. And then as it happens, he continues the, the progression throughout the night of right. the first debate. I think in this one, he said, I'm going to keep my game plan. I'm going to keep my cool. And I have to say, um, you know, I'm not voting for either of them. So I really don't have a dog in the fight. But between the two, I, I do have to say uh, extraordinary restraint shown by Biden mm -hmm. when Donald Trump is attacking his family. Right. Because I know that if it were me and were my brother or my child being attacked uh, by the president when, you know, clear conflict of interest exists within his family and right. how he's running the White House, uh, the hypocrisy is very glaring. And I think he didn't have to say that. That's the thing is we all other unless you're a true tried and true Trump voter. All of us kind of know that Trump is kind of making money off of being president a little bit. And his right. kids are and his kids are getting access that most people would not have access to because their father is president. And uh, and so for Biden to be getting attacked for his family and for him to keep his cool was something I have to take extraordinary restraint. I don't think I would have been able to do that at <laughs> his place. <laughs> um, it it did take a lot of restraint. And I will say that he did a – Biden did a phenomenal job of not getting sucked into the fights in the beginning. I would say the first 45 minutes. I would say as he got tired – Two things happened to Biden as he got tired. One is he started getting sucked more into the baits. And two, you could see his mental clarity starting to diminish a little bit. And he would, you know, his, his stutter would come back a little bit. And he really struggled with that when once, you know, once his energy level is down. But I don't know what the fuck is Trump taking Sudafed or what, but that guy just he never loses energy. It's unreal. Yeah, Trump Trump is very much the person who he loves he loves to fight. That's his thing. Right. You know, that's what gets him going, you know, uh, and, and I feel like that's why he gets so amped for these debates. I mean, that's the only time he's amped. If you look at like his schedule, he's not working very hard in the White House. He has a lot of executive time and things like that. So right. 
Uh, he's playing plenty of golf. Let's just say he's reserving that energy for debates and stuff like that. Right. So, um, but it, I think you're speaking to Biden's mental clarity. I do think he got fatigued throughout the debate and you can see clearly the body language, uh, his mental clarity. He kind of rambled more towards the end of the debate. Right. And I think was, that he was sharp at the beginning. Like Biden was, I would say the first 40 minutes, he was fucking sharp. He was, he was very clear. It, it looked a lot more like 2012, 2016 Joe Biden right. than the 2020 Joe Biden we've had throughout this primary process. Right. And I will say, including all of the primary debates, this was probably maybe his strongest debate performance, maybe the second strongest after the one he did with Bernie where it was just him and Bernie. Um, he definitely does better when it's one-on-one as opposed to having a crowded field of candidates. Right. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. And, you know, I, I did say he didn't lose his cool except for the uh, Abe Lincoln over here. Right, right. That, that line. It's uh, because it's such a grandpa comment. <laughs> like you just aged yourself 20 years. Well, and not just that, but like, and then Trump's like, no, no, no. I didn't say I was Abe Lincoln. I said I'm the best, second or first best compared to Abe Lincoln. And we're all like, wait, uh, did you just have to explain that? Like, Clarify. And in, in we get, what we get the joke. Yeah. In what universe did every single person not know what Joe Biden meant that he felt like he needed to clarify? Oh, oh, my goodness. So uh, we're here in Georgia. Th- that just sparked something in my brain. I really want to bring up about this okay. debate because, uh, you know, I'm here in Georgia. First off, we are the Georgia's a swing state. I'm not used to that. I'm not used to the swing state ads. I'm not used to all that. Um, what, is it, what is it like in Georgia now that it's a swing state? It's crazy. Actually, today we have uh, we had Don Jr. and Kamala Harris both in town. So it's like it's we're getting regular visits from the candidates. It's very weird, and they're surrogates. But the other <laughs> weird thing was, is, you know, they were discussing immigration throughout the debate, and at one right. point. Uh, Trump was talking about, well, these kids, they're brought here by the coyotes and the cartels. And we had a lawmaker in Georgia. This is the lawmaker, Michael, who was next to Snellville. So it's like right next door to where we grew up, that neighboring district. Right. She put on Twitter, does he really think that coyotes are bringing people over here? They can't even carry babies or whatever. Thinking thinking they were talking about literal coyotes. My God. And I'm like, I'm like, listen, if you, if this is your base understanding of what immigration is and you don't understand the basic terms of it, and this is how you tweet off, you maybe should not be an elective representative in a state that is literally a corridor for illegal human trafficking, uh, the I-85 corridor. So, um, the airport is the worst yeah. in the country. And so it's like, that's a real issue. And a lot of that is tied to immigration and coyotes and human trafficking. And so for, I was just, I was aghast that an elected official in Georgia tweeted Strange that out. Enough, that occurred to me during the debate last night when he said coyote several times. And I'm thinking, you know, is this really relevant to people from like North Dakota? Like, do they hear this right. term enough for it to be? Yeah. Right-wing voters in North Dakota hear it because they watch Fox News. And Fox News likes you to remember that coyotes are the most dangerous thing in the world right now. That's really the message they try to push. Um, It's all about priorities, you know, and what they focus on. But I just thought that was a a little funny side note there when you mentioned that. Horrid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But what's fascinating right now, like uh, 538, Nate Silver has Georgia as a 50-50 toss-up. A 50-50 toss-up. Has that ever happened? I don't Um, know. The last time Georgia went blue for a Democrat was Bill Clinton in 92, I believe. I want to say Bob Dole got it in 96. So it's been almost 30 years. 
since a presidential candidate has gone blue in Georgia. Um, but the other thing is we've been well within the margin of error for weeks now. Right. Um, and now, uh, the latest round of polling just came out from WSB today, and it looks like Trump is now up by four points, which is in the margin of error still. He was up by two previously. Biden was up by one in another poll. So it's Which poll is that? What polls are you looking at? Uh, WSB. They just released it on okay. Twitter today. Okay. Um, also shows that Purdue is pulling a little bit away from Ossoff. He was at just over 50% of the respondents, which would prevent a runoff. Right. Um, so it's like something like 50%, 44 and then Shane Hazel, the libertarian, is pulling 2 to 4%. Um, so it's, it's kind of weird. Uh, the libertarians in the race for Senate and both of these Senate races can have a heavily outsized influence based on their vote percentages on the total, because it can cause a runoff in both these races, which if we, if I'm sick of election commercials now, wait until we're the only Senate races in the whole country and and watch Georgia be the last two Senate races that decide the fate of the Senate. And then that happens. (laughs) You're going to see hundreds of millions of dollars with ads flooding my state. And I'm going to never watch television. Yeah, again. Yeah. What I mean, what happened in in Georgia? Because back in September, uh, it was like a 69. Trump had it a 69 to 31 chance, and then it just September, late September, October. It's down to like 57, 43, and then all of a sudden you get to today, and it's a fucking toss up. Like what? Have well, you seen anything change specifically in voter sentiment, like on the ground? What? Do you think it's the whole Black Lives Movement? Like, I, that, go ahead. I, I honestly could say and this is probably true nationally. I think what happens is the uh, voters really start paying attention and really start keying into the election after Labor Day. Mm. And uh, throughout that time, you had that first debate, and that first debate on the 29th really hurt Trump. I really right. feel like it hurt the president. And that's where you're starting to see the polling sea changes right as it goes into September into October. Right. And since then, Trump has been playing catch up, which is why Pence has visited the state. Trump has visited the state twice. He's been in the state twice now. Um, I think he was here today uh, doing a rally somewhere. And uh, and, you, and you have uh, now Don Jr. So it's like you're having so much. And, th- and this is actually a really bad sign. I try to tell my Republican friends who are super excited to see the president. I'm like, you should not be excited to be seeing him in Georgia. This <laughs> should not be a state where he has to go campaign two weeks before the election. Right. You should be excited to be seeing him in Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, because I think this afternoon he was in the villages. I don't know if you know what the villages is, John, but they've got the highest elderly population of STDs in the entire country. And it was interesting seeing them all standing around with no masks on. Well, um, I'm not a, uh, you know, as far as masks go, I am a definite wear it when you get out of the house kind of a person. And I think, you know, uh, and as a libertarian, of course, I don't, really support mask mandates saying that government should force you to wear a mask. But I also think that if you're not wearing one, you're kind of taking a major risk with your health that most uh, rational people, I think, would assume is kind of a, a misstep. It's just a little piece of fabric you wear over your face. And for people who say masks aren't effective, I mean, just give me a fucking break. I'm sorry. It's just... Yeah, or or oh, I can't breathe through a mask. Well, guess what? I there's a guy who ran a marathon because he had pollen allergies, and it was during it was in France, I think, and it was when all the flowers were blooming and pollen Mm -hmm. was in the air. So this guy ran a marathon wearing a mask with a filter and a 95 filter on it, 
If that yeah, guy can run a some, marathon, you can yeah, go there to There are some kid track stars who have been running with masks on. I run in the neighborhood. If I see somebody, I'll put my mask up while I'm running. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's neither here nor there. And I do appreciate that, that Biden is advocating wearing a mask. I don't appreciate him saying we're going to have mask mandates. Right. Because I don't really think that the federal government has the ability. And they don't. And he knows that. And he said, well, he he, said as much. When he flubbed up and said that he wanted a vaccine mandate, I was like, oh, dear man, what are you doing? Yeah. I mean, there's no flu vaccine mandate. There, you know. And, there and, should, and, it's 40 percent effective certain years. I, and and this virus or in this vaccine, if one is developed soon, is most certainly not going to be 100 percent surefire, completely tested. It's not like. Um, it's not like immunizations when you're a kid. It's not that kind of vaccine. It's, I mean, even even if it passes phase three trials, which of course it better. I'm not taking any vaccine that doesn't. Um, uh, it, it it's still not proving that it's going to be 100 percent effective. We're going to still need uh, to socially distance and other things until we can get the now, numbers under control. Va- a vaccine is going to be part of a comprehensive program right. in order to move this forward. And no, I, I agree, there should not be mandates, but you need to get people, you need to grab, capture the hearts and minds of people as a leader and as a politician. That should be the goal. And I know that, you know, Biden did say, he, he gaffed a couple of weeks ago and said he is in favor of a mask mandate. And they said, well, how did you do that? And he said, well, you can't. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and it's like, well, why did you say it, Joe? Don't say it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, I think you can be that leader. And of course, the only people who should be able to mandate if you're wearing a mask is a homeowner or a business owner. If you're coming into their home or into their business, right. you know, that's the people that should be mandating whether masks are worn or not. Um, and then also, you know, you can vote with your dollars uh, as to where you go, um, what businesses you go to, things like that. So uh, anyway, back to the debate kind of getting back to where they are. They talked an awful lot about COVID. Yes. Uh, COVID, of course, was a major part early on. Um, I think Biden was effective in hitting Trump on the fact that uh, he was praising President Xi um, early on, saying, oh, the Chinese are being so transparent. And then as soon as the numbers started spiking, um, it very quickly turned into this is China's fault. Right. And it's the China plague. Right. China plague. And then, uh, you know, him saying, well, he called me xenophobic for, uh, you know, for closing the border. And Biden said, no, I didn't call him that for that. What Biden should have said right then and there was, hey, man, you called it the Kung flu on television. That is xenophobic. That is that is xenophobic right there. Right. You know, it and it may be a funny ha-ha joke to you, but it's xenophobic against Asian Americans. Right. And if, if Biden, I wish Biden, I mean, I don't wish, I'm, I'm not a Democrat. But I, <laughs> if Biden were to be more effective, what he should have right. done, if I were advising him, I would have said, you need to come with a concrete example right then and there. Right. Say, this is the xenophobia I'm talking about. And um, brought up the fact that there have been more crimes against Asian Americans as a result. I mean, I'm sure, and I don't know the statistics on that, but I'm sure there's a statistic on that that you could have pulled up and used. Yeah. Um, and- I, and I will say Biden did a good job of doing the typical politician thing. Now, here's the thing. His policies are pretty terrible. Like, I don't really agree with most of his policies. I don't think he explains them very well. Um, I think he did a lot of running away from the left, which I understand he's trying to attack to the center. But uh, how much is that going to cost him votes on the left of people who just are going to be like, this guy's not even going to help me 
You know, I, I, that's a really interesting question. And I hear that a lot from progressives as they say, well, you know, he's abandoning the left at this point. And, and I don't know, I have a hard time seeing progressives staying home and allowing Donald Trump to stay in office. I have they a hard it. time. What's they that? Did in 20, they did in 2016. They did, but 2016 was, I, I believe 2016 was different in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we could go into all the ways why 2016 is different than 2020. But, you know, at this point, I definitely think that the moderate and, you know, swing voter in a in states that are battlegrounds are actually the, the votes that you need to be going after right now. I, I definitely understand the strategy. I'm not saying it's right, but I understand the strategy of distancing yourself from the far left at this point in the race. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I get it, too. Oh, sorry. I was listening today, a, a leader in the Detroit area, and he was saying that um, a lot of voters in Detroit, they didn't come out to vote in the last election, in the last presidential election, just because they didn't like Hillary. They didn't like Trump either, but they assumed that she was going to win. So right. They just didn't go. That's a good point. And I think that's that's a, a you know one of the reasons why twenty six is very different. And also you know last night we hear we hear Trump calling Biden out for being a politician. You had all this time. You haven't done anything. You're a politician. You're a politician. You're a politician. But this is the incumbent president. He is a politician now, whether he likes it or not. And this entire I'm on the outside and I'm going to shake things up is not going to work in 2020 the way it worked in 2016. Yeah, it's it's hard to be an outsider when your address is 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's very hard to say that you're not involved with what's going on. I mean, he's probably less involved than most presidents. He does keep himself just kind of aloof doing whatever he does, watching Fox News and tweeting all day. But he is the president. Like he, he right. could be more involved if he wanted to be. <laughs> um, so I did want to talk about this. Uh, you know, I, I do want to. I, I do got to throw my shots across the ballot. Both. I do feel that there was a sense of hypocrisy from both candidates. Um, two instances: President Trump blames uh, blue states for all the COVID infections. But at mm. the very beginning of the debate, he says, "There's a spike in Texas. It went down. There's a spike in Florida. It went down. There's a spike in Arizona. It went down." All Republican governors, right? The three examples that he threw up on the top of his head for where there have been recent spikes. All Republican governors. So for him to be like, it's all the blue states. Similarly, Joe Biden comes up and says, "It's not red states and blue states. We're the United States." But all the COVID's coming out of the red states. <laughs> yes, I recognize that. Yes, he did. And that and that is, you know, absolutely false as well. I mean, he was talking about the Midwest and upper Midwest, but you look at the East Coast and, and it's blowing up. It's on fire. So it's like, they're, you know, under in that circumstance, you're absolutely right. They were both full of it. Yeah, t- completely. And I do, uh, I do think it's a good strategy, though, that Biden is using in that he's trying to separate out this idea of red states and blue states and, and talk about the United States. He's using that strategy pretty consistently over the past month or so. Um, and I think it's the right message. Now, you can't be hypocritical about it. And I think that's where you're, you caught him falling down is, is the hypocrisy of that statement in relationship to that strategy. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it just further divides. It creates, um, you know, the, the statements like that to me are, first off, the it's not a red state, it's blue state, it's the United States. That's Obama 2004, the convention. Like, that is a straight up Obama line. Right. That he is lifting. <laughs> um, it is. It is. But it's a great fucking line. <laughs> it is a great line. And it's it, true. It, it should be true. 
Yeah, it should be true. You should be treating everyone the same regardless of who they voted for. And you do see Biden trying to consolidate that with getting Republican support from folks like Kasich and, and others. You know, Which the progressives is, hate. Yeah, well, hate. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not crazy about John Kasich, someone who's anti-gay marriage, uh, anti-abortion. Is he still anti-gay marriage? I thought I he was mean, uber moderate. I don't, I don't think he's pro-gay marriage at this point. I, I could be wrong. but Even, uh, even the Pope is making gains. <laughs> I know. A little bit. <laughs> civil little bit. unions. Civil unions. Civil unions. But but that's the we're moving in the direction. Baby steps. Okay, but um, <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, you know, so to talk back to this debate and back to this, you know, this kind of hypocrisy. Um, I think the biggest mis- the biggest misstep from both um, was when the moderator said, "Can you speak directly to communities of color right now and what you would be doing as president for them?" Um, and, and they kind of touched on a few things, but really what they used that answer for was to attack each other. And that is going to, I'm telling you right now, in a debate where there's two old white guys, that's going to be a turnoff to people who said, they don't even take the time to speak to me and my issues. Right. Like, oh, yeah. what are we doing here? Um, it, was, it was a lot of political theater. And I do wish Trump's, there was a third Trump- party. <laughs> It, it just it boggled my mind when Trump said, I'm the least racist person in this room. And he's like, he's looking into the audience to see if he can see anyone. And, you know, there is a- His wife a was blood, in the audience. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a black moderator who he's also saying he's less racist than. And it's just like this idea. I've known a lot of people in my life who have- made statements like this, where they say, I'm the least uh, homophobic person you'll ever meet. I'm the least racist person you'll ever meet. It's like, the the very fact that you feel the need to say that points to something psychological going on with you. And see, had I been Biden and he said that in my presence, the thing I say to people in that instance is actions speak louder than words. You can say I'm not racist all day long, right? But if your policies are continuing the structural and uh, the structural and institutional racism that's going on, you're not addressing it. All you can talk about is the stock market and how uh, black unemployment was low when it was going down before you became president. Like it, it wasn't like it wasn't like there's 20 percent black unemployment. Donald Trump becomes president, solved. It's done. Right. It was on. An, it was on. The unemployment rate was going down for years. Right. So I mean, granted. A lot of his policies, I will say there are things that, are, you know, cutting regulations, pro-business. There is There are things that stimulated growth in the market. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he, when he cut the corporate tax cut from 38% to 21, I mean, that just, that blew up the stock market. Now, I don't think he did anything for Main Street. But Unless you have a 401k. I will say he did bring right. that up, too. This is something that, and and I, I, I really think there's a need to be a disconnect between just the stock market and Wall Street, because we all, uh, many people have a 401k, the retirement is tied up in the market, but that's not just what they're talking about. The, the truth is, is that both major parties, but especially Donald Trump, who is the party in power, whoever the party in power is, is going to have Wall Street's ear. They're going to get those uh, donations from the corporations and things like that. So um, it, it's it's different than just to say, the st- and, you, and you can't also judge it just by the stock market, which is what Trump seems to do. Right. You're right. not judge how Main Street feels. And I think Biden was very effective in his line of, uh, you know, uh, when they talk about COVID, you're living, you're talking about living with it. We're dying with it. Right. right. That was a and, and when he said there are people who uh, reach over and their wife or their husband isn't there anymore and they expect him to be. Yeah. Right. That is a real thing. 
Right. And I think he effectively communicated that. Um, but do I, I just don't see how he, I don't think he effectively communicated enough how his policies are going to help uh, Main Street, especially with things like a oh, word's going to do away with the oil industry. Like that was a gaffe because he did not properly explain what he meant. Right. And I want to do right. away with fossil fuels, too. I mean, right. I do. Right. And, and like he they've been it, clarifying it on CNN all day, but not everybody is watching CNN. You're not getting the 80 million viewers <laughs> or whatever it is. Right. And you know, he did he did go back and say, well, no, we're trying to get there. We're trying to, you gotta, you gotta move in that direction. It takes time. There's gonna be a transition period. He articulated that poorly, extremely yeah. poorly. At that point, yeah. it was late in the game. Yeah. And I and you know, people in Texas are flipping the fuck out. I think I think last night he may. If he had an opportunity with Texas, it's gone now. Yeah, I think Beto O'Rourke did a spit take when he said that because um, um, he he's uh, if you're in Texas or Oklahoma or or even or even places up you know uh, in the industrial uh, in the industrial Northeast, um, coal country right. too. There there is you know you have to articulate the message. You know, um, of course. I would say just do away with all energy subsidies. Let the market figure it out over time. Innovation will get you there. You know, uh, what is it? Tesla's done more to reduce carbon emissions than a lot of the uh, marketplace mechanisms put in place by government. But you have to communicate that while you want to end fossil fuels, you want something to be replacing it. You want instead of people going underground to dig coal, you want them above ground repairing solar cells. Right. That's how you communicate those ideas. Um, and right. of course, no one talked about nuclear power, which if we're talking about reducing carbon, you have to talk about nuclear power. It has to be part of the solution. You cannot get to zero emissions without some nuclear power. It doesn't have to be everything, but it's part of that patchwork of solutions. The the, the PR campaign for nuclear power, the, the marketing program for that has been there. That's the problem. See, because Anytime you bring up the word nuclear, all people think about is Three Mile Island. All they think about is Chernobyl. All they th- uh, uh, f- what's the Japanese? Uh, Fukushima. Yeah. Fukushima, yeah. And, you know, those were disasters, 100%. But the when it comes to carbon emissions and when it comes to semi, like, very clean energy, nuclear is a, an extremely clean energy. Now, it's got an enormous amount of dense waste that has a half-life of like a million fucking years, but it is, you know, when it comes to a carbon footprint, it's very, very, very low. And if you're not talking about, you know, if you're not talking about nuclear, you're not, you're, you're, you're just ignoring important scientific information. And the, the, the other problem with nuclear is also there's a lot of upfront costs too, um, in addition to the waste factor. But, um, you know, once it's running, it's running. And over time it will pay itself off. Um, but, uh, you're, you're right. There's a storage problem too. I always t- joke that can't uh, Elon Musk make a rocket that we can just fire all that stuff into the sun? Like it's all nuclear material. Just just launch just launch all the nuclear material. In fact, you know, uh, just so, disarm, just so, launch them all into the sun. So Kristen and I have had this conversation. Um, it's been an ongoing conversation for about two months now. Where I'm like, I, I, I suggested her. I said, well. Why can't we just literally shoot our waste into space, right? And because and it's horrible intergalactic policy. You do not want to be seen as the litter bugs of the no, solar I'm wearing system. My, I'm wearing my Star Trek <laughs> shirt right now. My man. Uh, I will tell you that that's, um, that's bad Federation policy. <laughs> <laughs> but now, now hear me out. And, and so Chris and I have had this conversation a couple of times. Hear me out. So 
we the what people don't recognize is the vastest of space, right? It's it's our our you know tiny tiny blue marble planet compared to the vastest of space. Like we couldn't do enough. Like we couldn't even bother another civilization that's light years away. Like they wouldn't even be bothered. What we might accidentally end up doing is dropping our garbage DNA on other planets and starting life on other planets. That's actually a more likely scenario than aliens being pissed at us because we're litter bugs. Yeah. I mean, let's not accidentally drop our genetic material onto Mars or wherever. And, <laughs> and, and then, then there, there was a story out recently that I, the space station i don't know if it was our own garbage or where the garbage came from but the space station got attacked by some space garbage yeah they got hit, yeah. Got hit by some space garbage <laughs> it's very uh it, it moves very fast around the earth so yeah. uh if you're if you're still within the gravitational pull it's like a bullet so uh right you gotta get it past the gravitational pull we don't want your garbage rotating around yeah no for sure yeah we already have enough of gps satellites doing that so there's already enough garbage <laughs> so uh to transition back to the debate the thing yeah. that i thought the thing that i really liked that biden said was well not liked okay i i have a problem when politicians can't take ownership for their mistakes and Trump is is by far the worst about this, but most politicians are very bad at it, and Biden included. But what I appreciated was that when the 1994 crime bill was brought up, he admitted that it was a mistake. He admitted that it had detrimental ef effects on the black community, and he wanted to pivot the conversation to drugs – uh, drug possession, drug addiction should be treated, not, um, you know, people should not be sent to prison for for these things. And I thought that was extremely um, intelligent thing to do. I and mean, it's not a popular thing to do is admit your mistake. But when when you do and then because that's a sign that is a massive and significant shift in policy and direction for the United States of America. I mean, if he does it. If he does it, absolutely, which is what and, Trump, which is what Trump pointed at him and said, and, "Why, why didn't you do it before?" And, well, and I get and, it, and that's and fair. Even, and even more than that, um, why didn't you apologize before the last debate? Because it, I mean, you can go, you can find video less than a year ago when he was still running the primary, um, when he's asked, "Do you uh, apologize or do you um, admit the mistakes of the '94 crime bill?" No, he plainly said no. And so there has been a shift in him, and obviously the shift is he needs to get younger voters <laughs> needs to be moving policy forward where the party or where uh, the voters of the party want him to go. Um, and, th and this is the thing I will tell uh, Democrats um, is really, really, literally, ch it, this just bugged the shit out of me in 2009 and beyond when Obama became president. We had a massive anti-war movement in this country. I was part of it. I marched against the Iraq war. Um, I spoke out against the continued war in Afghanistan and the expansion of drone wars, all these things during the Bush years. And then Obama became president and the anti-war left just disappeared because the, guy looked <laughs> good, because the guy looked good in a suit and because he was a bit of a smoother talker, that issue kind of went away to the left. And what I worry about- That's kind of why you left the left, is it not? It is exactly why I left the Democratic Party. And I fear that in this 2020 election, Biden is going to win. And you're going to see much of that activism and anger and, and, and emotion that we've been seeing in the streets since George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's murder. I worry that that is going to disappear. 
And mm-hmm. I, I will say this to my any Democrats who are watching this right now. Just I'm just one random libertarian, right? But I'm begging you, if you have been out in the street fighting for these things, do not stop fighting for those things just because Joe Biden has gotten elected. Because right. we do have to hold him accountable. Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, excuse me, Kamala Harris, her record as AG of California and and DA in San Francisco leaves much to be desired in the realm of criminal justice. So you're going to have to hold her accountable as well. So don't think that just because your candidate wins that your issues win. That could not be further from the truth because what happens is as soon as a candidate wins, every interest against you starts trying to get their hooks and those who have power. Right. Regardless, even if even if Joe Jorgensen were to somehow win the presidency, mm-hmm. the libertarian candidate, I would still be having to hold her accountable because the day she gets elected, the day she becomes the president elect, those who are in power, those who have corporate strength and influence and lobbyists start putting their hooks in them and trying to get them to pull in their direction. And it's right. up to us as citizens to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, and we can transition right into how to expand voices in democracy if you'd like. I'd love to talk about that for a little bit. Well, yeah, no, I'd, lo- I'd love to. Go h- Hit me with what you got. So here's how you, you know, I, I uh, a majority of Americans, uh, over 70% when last polled, said that we need to have third parties involved in the debates. We need to have third parties involved. Um, the way we do this, there's several things that we can do. Mark Cuban was like, we just need to dissolve all the parties. I think he's running for president in 2024 as an independent. He that's may. Just my, I don't, that's I, just my do you think he run, I don't I don't think he's stupid enough to run as an independent. I saw an interview with him and Andrew Yang, and one of the things he mentioned was that he did he's smart. He did he did his polling ahead of time and he just didn't have the the name recognition that a Donald Trump has. Um and Donald Trump was intelligent not to run as an independent, he ran, ran as a Republican. So I don't think Mark Cuban would run as an independent, but you never know. Sorry, well, go ahead. I, but I you know, he he said just dissolve all the parties. And I said, that's not gonna work. What you have to do is you have to fight for these things. First and foremost, ballot access. You have to fight so it's easier for third parties and independents to just get on the ballot. Right now, uh, while Democrats and Republicans have taxpayer-funded primary systems that get tons of media coverage, you have libertarians and greens fighting, knocking on doors, getting those petitions signed just to get on the ballot. Uh, So first and foremost, you need to make it easier those alternative voices to get on the ballot, right? So and and so and those are mainly um, the 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 main roadblocks to that happening is usually in the states, right? Yes, these are every state has different ballot access requirements. Like uh, in Georgia here, it's ridiculous. Sixty uh, percent of the state senate and assembly races that represent eighty percent of the population run unopposed every election. They just have one name on the ballot right. due to gerrymandering and lack of independence. And it's in right. the interest of every citizen for this to happen. The only people that it's not in the interest of is the parties. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. I mean, because the more candidates there are, the more even the Democrats and Republicans are pushed to focus on things that people actually care about. 100%. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, and I said when I ran for office, you know, one of our forums, you know, having more choices and more voices in the political discourse is like a is like a whetstone to a blade. It sharpens the arguments. It sharpens the candidates. It makes people focus on what's going on, and uh, it brings about issues that the other two parties really don't like to talk about. I was the only candidate in my race, for instance, that was heavily saying we need to end cash bail as an industry. It needs to not exist in this country because it makes money off the backs of the poor. Right. That issue got brought up in subsequent forums because I had mentioned it previously. And it's because of putting that out there that that became an issue in the discussion. 
Um, So that's another reason why you need independent voices. And another way to do that is to advocate for ranked choice voting. Uh, We have it in Maine now. Maine will be the first state in the history of the country to vote for president using ranked choice voting. Um, And there are uh, two or three other states where this is on the ballot to have ranked choice voting. And uh, that's a game changer because it takes away the spoiler vote effect, the the Nader effect, uh, the Jill Stein effect, whatever you want to call it. uh, It takes that fear away from people. You can say it's like an instant runoff. And I tell people in Georgia the same thing because we have runoffs. You can vote for the libertarian Shane Hazel for Senate because if John Ossoff or David Perdue don't get over 50%, you get a do-over. You get to go back and vote again for your second choice. So, uh, But if we could do that instantly, it happens all at once. It takes away the voter fatigue of having to go back and vote again. Um, And again, it takes away the fear that people have of voting third party or independent. So those two main steps to try to get more choice and more voices in the, in the conversation. I completely agree. And I think it, it, it must happen. I think the biggest you know, issue that keeps it from happening is, and, and we had you on a show previously, if you haven't uh, heard our first conversation with Chase, go back and listen to it. It's called uh, um, How to Deal with the Dynastic Duopoly. And the problem with, as we spoke about then, the problem with the duopoly, the Republicans and the Democrats and the two-party system, is that they collude together behind closed doors and subtly in ways that allow them not to have to allow third parties in, which in effect, as you were both saying quite accurately, it eliminates the need for competition, for sharp dialogue, because you don't have this third party able to throw stones. So you can dig into a position here on the left, you can dig into a position here on the right, and you don't have anyone pushing you to innovate and come up with better solutions and get out of your uh, political dogma. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that is facilitated, at least at the federal level, by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Um, you know, presidential debates are the most viewed political events, uh, second to the maybe the, uh, the actual election night speech of the winner. But I mean, it, right. it is a huge chance for people to be heard. And uh, the Commission on Presidential Debates, they are a non-governmental organization. It sounds very like a, the government, right? The Commission on Presidential right. Debates. Right. It's actually a private company. It's a private corporation. Oh, I didn't know that. That, yeah. uh, that has Democrats and Republicans only on their board. And they basically do whatever they can to try to prevent third-party voices. Four years ago, Gary Johnson was gaining steam, and uh, he was nearing 10% in the polls, and they changed the polling threshold to say, oh, now you got to get 15% in the polls. To get on the they, debates. To get in the debates. It used they, to be, because the threshold was 5% at one point, was it not? 5%, and then 10%, you know, they, they've moved it up, and, and they're making That's it harder. Uh, it used to be debates were run by the League of Women Voters, and they just allowed anybody. You know, they had they had three people in '92, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, but so now they they basically collude. They do whatever they can, and uh, and then this time around, you know, oh Joe Jorgensen, you got to get 15 percent in the polls. Well, the truth is, is that the polling agencies that were picked, that were selected by the CPD to be the official polls they judge don't include Joe Jorgensen in the polls. Right. So she's not even getting asked about. So she can't even have the chance to get 15%, five, much less 5%. Right. Uh, because she's not even being asked. And it, I do feel like- and you talk and that that is the definition of collusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's the, it's, it's something that, you know, four, and it's something I've noticed much more in 2020. And I think part of that is because four years ago, you had Gary Johnson and Bill Weld as the libertarian candidates, two former Republican governors. 
And I, I do think that a certain segment of the electorate thought, well, these guys will take votes away from Donald Trump. And so you had Gary Johnson and Bill Well town halls on CNN on an MSNBC uh, because they think, well, we'll give these guys enough of a view. They'll take votes away from Trump. It'll ensure Hillary Clinton wins. But Hillary Clinton did not win in 2016. And so now you see a concerted effort from the Democratic Party to limit third party voices to the point of where in Wisconsin, they used a clerical error to knock the Green Party off of the ballot in Wisconsin because they are scared that a few thousand votes for the Green Party candidate, Howie Hawkins, is going to somehow cost Biden the election in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, I, I do think that that is a uh, that's a kind of a BS line of thinking. If your candidate is worthy enough to get the number of votes to win the state, that's it. it you can't blame other candidates for being more charismatic or for taking some of this segment's votes because you weren't speaking enough to the issues that those voters were wanting to talk about. That's the whole point of competition. If we can't, if we can't allow good ideas to compete, then we're just going to be, I mean, this is how empires fall. You guys like this is a, this is a real fucking problem. And if we don't address these things, if we don't get actual ranked choice voting and now let's, okay, let's, let's rewind for a second, because I think this is, this is important to, um, the context of this conversation. So uh, the cons the original Constitution Convention was in 1787. Um, in the summer of 1787, hot as fuck, these like old, rich, elite white dudes who are the framers and the architects of the con Constitution were wearing their wigs, sweating like pigs, and arguing for an entire summer uh, in Philadelphia. And the this is this is the point at which they were trying to figure out how do we elect a leader? And what these rich elite, well-schooled, like a lot, I'm, I'm not gonna argue with the experiment of the American Democratic Republic, but I will say that these motherfuckers were elite and they, were, they believed they were better than the rest of society. And so the only thing in the constitution about Electing a president, this is the only thing, is the Electoral College. It is literally the only thing. And the reason that they created the Electoral College, the first reason was because they believed people were too stupid to, or maybe not too stupid, maybe that's a little harsh, but too uninformed, too ignorant to be able to make an educated vote. So they believed that you needed to have electors make those, make those votes per each state. There is nothing in the Constitution that says the people will vote in that state and tell the electors what to do. That's not in the Constitution at all. The Literally, the leaders in the state can, the electors can absolutely defect. There's nothing that says they can't. And the secondary, more insidious issue is Southern uh, slave owners who, because of the three-fifth compromise, allowed their specific state to have more electors because each slave counts as three-fifths of a person. So they utilize that population to A, get more members in Congress uh, and to B, get more electors because the amount of electors every state has is based on your Congress. It's, it's a mirror image of your the amount of people you have in Congress plus your two senators. So Florida has 29 electoral votes. That's because we have 27 members of Congress and two senators. So the system was set up not to give the people the right to vote for their president. 
So if we're here in 2020, all of these years later, still fighting these same fights, how do you make inroads? Like, I, I feel like it's so baked into the system. These issues are so baked into the Republic that, you know, how do we turn it into more of a democratic Republic instead of just a fucking Republic? Um, well, there's a, there, there's some problems there, you know, like, uh, like <laughs> sorry, that was loaded. About, no, no, was no. Loaded. Talking about, talking about the electoral college, right. Uh, you know, you can say there are ways you never to get rid of it. You would have to amend the constitution, which is right. a huge undertaking. It would take a lot of effort, which was and, tried in 1968 and it almost happened. It almost happened. But guess who, guess who thwarted it? A filibuster in the Senate by uh, uh, by segregationalist Southern Democrats. And at this point, I think it would be uh, you would have a filibuster from any senators who are from states that are smaller than on the bottom half of the population because they do have outsized influence. So I don't think you're going to be able to amend that Constitution. But what you can do is you can pass a law that says that the Electoral College shall be done proportionally, meaning if you get 60 percent of the votes, your state gets 60 percent of the electoral votes. Uh, there are states that are doing PACs where it's whoever wins the national vote gets all of their electoral votes. Uh, if you could get 50 such states to agree to that uh, compromise, that you would have a national, you would in fact have a national. Don't we have? Election. Don't we currently have two states that operate by that measure? Is it Maine? Maine and Nebraska, I believe. Maine and is it Nebraska? Okay, and, Nebraska. yeah. So it's it's yeah. It, it's two states are currently doing that, and mm -hmm. so the idea is instead of a winner take all per state, you would have a. Uh, a percentage base. So if we had, you know, 29 electoral votes here in Florida, if it was a third, if it, the popular vote was 30% versus, you know, 60, 70% in Florida, you would give that proportionate amount. And that would essentially be, that would essentially bring us to a popular vote if all 50 states did it. Right? And that's and that's a workaround that is constitutional. You can right. do that and it don't fly in the face of the constitution, get challenged, whatever. But why would Republicans ever agree to that now that it's become a politicized? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's therein lies the problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so- Because before uh, 2000, this was not an issue. Like it wasn't a political issue really. Or as, I'm sorry, it wasn't a partisan issue, really, because no, you know, the popular vote generally went with the electoral vote before 2000. And then 2000, after 2000, it's like the Democrats are like, fuck this. And Republicans are like, this is great. Well, two, so two points here. First, I do want to say, um, while I respect the Constitution and its history, uh, there's a reason why I'm not in the Constitution Party. And that is because uh, I don't like find myself super beholden uh, just to the Constitution, I believe that there are inherent rights. The Constitution spells them out, but they don't they don't create those rights. And uh, you know, if you think about it, like uh, there's three of us on this panel. I don't know if you own a home. I don't, so I wouldn't have been able to vote at the time exactly. of the founding of this country. Uh, Kristen, you're female, so you're you wouldn't have been able to vote. So uh, I don't know what your situation is, Michael, but you may or may not have been able to vote, depending on whether you're a landowner or not. Um, Italian, I think. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're actually, you're, you're, you know what? I don't know what the rules, you know, or, you know, but what I'm saying is, is basically uh, most of the population were not able to vote. So uh, hence, I don't, you know, I don't just sit here and just like make love to the constitution like some people do. Right. Um, right. I believe that it's a growing document. It's something that changes over time. That's why we have 27 amendments. Um, we can change it. Um, uh, but, but we can't seem to, to change it anymore. 
Yeah, it's very tough to do. Um, and getting back to that point of like, why would Republicans uh, not want to do this? And why, you know, how do we get that to happen? Um, you kind of have to force it. You have to have them lose enough and make it an electoral issue. Um, but the other thing that I want to, fun fact, you know, talking about the popular vote and Republicans winning without the popular vote. Um, let, let's say, okay, so there's Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and now it will be Amy Coney Barrett. So right now, five of your Supreme Court justices were appointed by a president who was not popularly elected by a majority of the people. So now, and then, and then you have to think about the fact that uh, hundreds of judicial nominations were held up until Obama was no longer president. So now you're talking about uh, hundreds and hundreds of judges. So regardless of where the executive branch goes and the, uh, and the, the legislature goes, we now have a fundamentally changed court uh, and it was changed by men who were not elected by the most people. And right. so that is something that um, is kind of a weird thing. It's, it's yeah. very, it's, it's not normal. It's very, and, it, and this is also because typically we don't have such close elections. Typically one side or the other, it's kind of a wave one way or the other, you know, um, right. people kind of knew Bill Clinton was going to win re-election in 96, even before election day. People kind of knew, um, you know, even in 2008, people kind of knew Barack Obama was going to become president uh, because they felt like, well, just the, the poll numbers were such and, and the, the turnout was such. And so, and I, and I do feel like there's that same anticipation now for Biden. There was four years ago for Clinton too. So I think people are a little less complacent about it. Right. But um, that's the, the tide. It seems where the tide is going. And so, yeah. Um, but yeah, we have now a fundamentally changed judicial system thanks to two presidents who were not popularly elected. Yeah. And, and that's bizarre. And I have friends, you know, I, I actually have a friend who's also who's a libertarian who believes in the electoral college because he believes that, you know, the states in middle America deserve representation. And my argument to that is, well, but they get representation based on the amount, the population and they get representation in Congress and they get represent, they get unfair representation in the Senate. Let's say they still they have senators. Representation for acres. They have, right. uh, that's that's the thing. It's like they, they it's like, and I, I watch I watch a lot of soccer, and it's like in soccer you don't defend the area, you defend the player. Areas don't store, score goals, and it's like the same thing for um, you know populations. Like areas don't have feel, areas don't have ideas, areas don't have needs, areas don't have um, to don't need to feed their families. They don't have to you know. It's like cows don't get to vote. Cows don't get to vote. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Maybe two-fifths of a cow could represent a... Uh, yeah, I've heard, so speaking of who can and can't vote, I heard a very interesting proposal the other day about saying that we should either lower the voting age to 16. because My, my daughter parents. would love that. Um, I'm on the uh, flip side of that. I think that if you are under the age to vote, you should not be paying any taxes on your paycheck. You should get your 100% paycheck. So uh, you can build taxation so, without, without representation. Exactly. So I think, and I think if you did that, call me crazy, the second 18-year-olds start paying taxes, they're going to start becoming more fiscally conservative. And they're going to say, you know, why am I paying so much in taxes? I wasn't doing it for the last two years when I was working. All of a sudden, the McDonald's paycheck, like, goes down by a third. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. realize. That's so, a, that's a fun unintended consequence. Our son got his first paycheck this week. And so he's looking at it after I picked him up in the car. And I knew what was coming. And he's like, what? I was like, honey, they take out a lot in taxes. Who's FICA? Like, 
through your retirement that you probably probably won't be but around. Never so. get, never, never. That's your that's for the social security pro program that probably won't be around by the time you retire. But who's Fonda? <laughs> So, so his was even worse because he didn't didn't realize that it was going to be offset by a couple of weeks, which is how they do payroll. So, oh yeah. Okay, so, so I've got, yeah, I've got a game for you guys. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna play we're gonna play um, uh, fact checker for the debate, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say something, and you guys are gonna tell me if it's true, if it's false, um, or if it's misleading. Okay, you get three choices, true, false, or misleading, okay? All right, Uh, this is a quote from Joe Biden from the debate. He has caused the deficit with China to go up, not down. True, false, or misleading? He has caused the deficit with China to go up, not down. I mean... So to give context for everybody listening, so uh, Trump has put a, a lot of tariffs... Uh, on China, on Chinese goods coming in because he complains about our deficit. So we ch- we we they we buy way more from them than they buy for us, which is not necessarily a bad thing um, from an economic yeah. perspective. But but uh, so the question is, he has caused the deficit with China to go no, up, I'm gonna say true. not down. I'm going to say, say I'm going to I'm going to say uh, that's that's misleading. Okay, you ready? Okay, and so just to just to be fair and clear, I'm using uh, the New York Times fact checkers here. So just so you know, I'm I'm you know fake media, whatever you want to say, fake news, whatever. I'm just saying this is these are the these are the people who edit anyway. Fake news. Fake news. Fake news. All right, you got to draw a box. Here we go. Okay, um. All right, so it is false, according to the New York Times. The trajectory of the trade deficit with China, the gap between with uh, what Americans export to China and what it imports has gone up or down, depending on how you calculate the numbers. The trade deficit in goods with China fell sharply between 2018 and 2019. So bottom line, and y- y'all are going to get a kick out of this. So all of this shit you hear about Trump and China and how he's fucking kicking their ass and taxing the shit out of them, there's two points. One, in 2016 under Obama, the deficit was 347 billion. In 2019, it was 345 billion. So Trump has gotten us two billion dollar a two billion dollar swing out of the 345 variants. Uh, and in addition, the people who are actually picking up the tariffs, it's more American companies than China. So well, it's all American consumers. It's all American consumers, and right. Well, companies and consumers, but yes, at the end of the day, we're picking up the tab, not China. So I if always you- feel like my my tab monetarily is much smaller than my tab in human abuse. So <laughs> when I buy things from China, wait, say that again. What your tab? And- no, no, no. I feel like like the the the. the so whole the savings world- doesn't outcome the uh, overcome the human rights abuses, right? Oh, right. I mean, we all say that, but we still like. I just bought a new iPhone. I mean, here's the thing, though: Uh, taxes or tariffs are a tax on the American consumer. They, you know, sure, we got two billion dollars in a less trade deficit with China, which is neither here nor there. It doesn't really make a difference. Like, uh, guess what? I have a trade deficit with Quick Trip because I give them all my money (laughs) and they give me gas. 
So exactly. That, so that's, Thank you. That's, 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 that's a, kind of stupid. But then, that's a great that, example because Trump has been bitching about this forever. Oh, we have this huge trade deal. That's because we buy cheap products from China. Okay, and that's and then Walmart that two billion and that two billion dollars in change or whatever cost the American taxpayer twenty, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars in terms of uh, tariffs. And those tariffs, even if it's going to a company like say Nike now has to pay twenty percent more to import the shoes, right? Well, what does Nike do? They increase the price of their shoe by 20%. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's you, the consumer, who's paying that tariff. That's essentially why I argue for lower corporate taxes, because when you lower the cost of doing business, blah, blah, blah. But uh, uh, neither here nor there. And then at the end of the day, not only do American consumers have to pay tens and billions of dollars in taxes because of the government tariff program, but then also we have to pay tens of billions of dollars to bail out the American farmers who are no longer able to sell their soybeans over in China because now we've created a trade war. And what we could have done at the end of the day is we could have continued free trade. We could have facilitated more free trade. We should be facilitating more free trade and more marketplace growth around the world because then when we do that, goods are cheaper, uh, prices drop, and we enjoy a better quality of life. And um, that's that's the problem with both Biden and Trump with this whole uh, this whole trade war. You know, Biden says we're going to make more in America. When you do that, you're raising the cost of goods because it costs more to produce right. manufacturing in America. Um, a lot more. <laughs> and and at the end of the day, well, it's almost your like iPhone costs twice as much. Right. It's almost like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like I, you know, I'm a I'm a damned if you. I I don't think you're damned if you don't tariff because what happens is is the the uh, industries that helped build our middle class, manufacturing, uh, factory jobs. These things go out into the developing economies where they are now developing a middle class there. And what mm -hmm. we have here is we have continued marketplace innovation where we're making the new marketplaces. We're making the new ideas and the new products that will then be adapted into these uh, manufacturing over time. So we are uh, allowing for growth of a middle class in the developing world while at the same time enjoying uh, cheaper products, cheaper business, and uh, maintaining the skill sets and the education force and the in these this quality of so life that we need to facilitate mm -hmm. new innovation. Right. So you believe there is enough new innovation coming down the pipeline in the U.S. that we can afford to outsource our manufacturing? Oh, well, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, and uh, I think at the end of the day, it's going to become a conversation of. Um, you know, and I'm not, I am not a UBI libertarian. There are some out there, but I think the question of UBI is going to come up more and more. I just finished a podcast with Andrew Yang. So it's just been on the top of my head. That's I'm, all he talks about. Yeah, um, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Yang gang. Kind and of I, and uh, one of my, one of my uh, opponents, in my race, uh, Barrington Martin, the second, he is a progressive, uh, you know, he ran as a Democrat, but he's a Yang ganger as well. Um, and in Milton Friedman talked about a negative income tax. So there's, there are things that we talk about how we can, um, overcome the innovation hump where we're going to have a lot of jobs disappearing, you know, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing if we prepare for it. Like if we understand right. what's coming and we prepare our economy and prepare our workforce, prepare our education systems for these types of new jobs and, and new livelihoods that we're going to be having. That's a good thing, but we have to prepare for it. Yeah, and I don't hear that coming out of the mouths of the Donald Trumps and the Joe Bidens of the world. They're, these are things that they are not talking about. I mean, the they're not going to be around. I know, but the only thing that they're talking, and the only thing that at least Joe Biden is talking about is the is green innovation. I mean, we're not even they're not talking about any sort of future innovation when it comes to 
you know, where, where are we going to be as a country when we don't have them any manufacturing jobs and we're relying purely on a, a cloud-based innovation uh, technology society? Yeah, well, you know, here's the things you did not hear from Joe Biden or Donald Trump throughout this uh, last debate. You just talked about innovation and, and the changing nature of our economy. We didn't hear about war and peace, about how we're going to actually end wars abroad. We didn't no. talk about really meaningful criminal justice reform. We talked about legalizing drugs, but we didn't talk about things like qualified immunity, no-knock raids, um, uh, over-militarization to police. You didn't talk about those things substantively. Uh, the healthcare conversation was so lacking in real detail and real understanding and nuance. Um, it was just so such talking points. You didn't really, really get the substantive healthcare. I yeah. think enough. I mean, uh, I, mean, I, I do appreciate this. that Biden was open about how he's going to have a public option, and I don't. And while I say that's kind of a socialist program, that is not single payer healthcare. It's a different thing. It's a I, different I will, thing. It's I'll defend Biden on that. Yeah, it's it's one hundred percent a different thing. I mean, having it's a way to insurance companies. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. So let's let's do let's do another one. You led me into the the farmers one. So Trump says in the debate, "I just gave twenty eight billion to our farmers." True, false, or misleading? Uh, I'm gonna say false. Kristen, it's true. Uh, the answer is true. Uh, from 2018 to 2019, uh, Mr. Trump's administration did give 28 billion to farmers. He did so using a Department of Agriculture fund for the purpose of mitigating the impact of his trade wars with China and Europe. Total farm aid is projected to increase this year to a record 46 billion. Mr. Trump was incorrect, however, when he suggested that China was covering these costs. It is the American taxpayer because of what you said earlier, Chase, that tariffs fall on the American taxpayer, they fall on the American companies. So basically what Trump has done is started a trade war with China that is now uh, that the Americans are paying for and then funneling that back into farm. Why couldn't we have just given the money to the farmers directly? Like this is the shit that blows my mind okay, and people don't even consider. And so it's interesting because I had an unfair advantage on knowing the answer to this question because a buddy of mine posted something about it and they keep records. Uh, both of my families are farming families. So um, in my mom's family's area, I know the names of all the neighbors. So I was reading through who got what, um, stipend. Right. Is that what Stipen. we're calling it? Stipend. Stipen. Anyway, um, some of them to be quite fair, aren't farmers. I think they fall under agriculture. So I think some of them were did like lumber, but they all employ a lot of people. So... <sighs> Right. So, so corn is a great example. A long time ago, someone brought this up. So you have corn, right? And we, through agricultural subsidies, we pay farmers to make corn because corn is cheap and it lowers the price of corn because we increase the supply. Corn is now cheap. So what do they do? They make tons of high fructose corn syrup because now it's cheap to sweeten. It's cheaper than cane sugar. So now they sweeten all of our food and, and sodas and everything like that. And then, of course, now what do we want to do? We're getting fat. So what is the solution? Well, we have to tax the sugary sodas, right? We have to tax <laughs> the sugary sodas. So what we do is we're now taxing the people who drink the sodas the so we can take head. that money and then we can give it to farmers to grow cheap corn syrup so we can make more <laughs> corn syrup so we can tax more of it. Just stop. 
to stop and giving whole, subsidies and to corn. The whole time, the manufacturers <laughs> are making lots and lots of money. And we're getting health. We're getting unhealthy and fat, right? So what yes. you want to do is just stop giving money to the damn farmers to make the cheap corn, make the corn more expensive, make the fructose <laughs> corn syrup lower expensive than the sugar, make the sugar go into the food. Well, equilibrium. Like you were talking about with China, like I think, and especially with COVID this year, like a lot of farmers have just watched their entire crop sit there and rot before they could sell it anywhere. Um, and it's always been hard on farmers. Like I'm not talking about commercial farms, but small mm -hmm. farms really, really struggle. I almost cried. Uh, it was a couple of years before my grandma died. They finally took away our tobacco stipend. Um, she used stipend. to be able to uh, stipend. I'm just kidding. <laughs> she used to be able to like use her quantity of land and sell that quantity to people in the area who grew tobacco. Oh yeah. And this is the thing, like this idea. So for example, like Tesla right now. So if you actually look at Tesla's books, like they're not profitable yet. They're still not profitable. And one of the reasons that they are profitable on paper is because they get all these green energy tax credits. Well, the really interesting thing about Tesla is they sell their tax credits to GM and Ford. They literally purchase those tax credits at a premium. So they get, you know, let's say for every dollar they save in tax, they sell that tax credit for 90 cents or whatever. So that company is saving 10 cents. And this is how, <laughs> this and is happening. This is happening right now. It rely on cobalt, and if you study cobalt mining, that's a whole other horrifying. Oh. Yeah, well, uh, so speaking back to farming, you know, and, and uh, the rough life that farmers are going through, you know, um, uh, if I were to be running statewide in Georgia for anything, one of the things I would like to advocate for is uh, that we help Georgia farmers by giving them a new cash crop, namely cannabis. Yes, cannabis. Uh, because it grows fast. We have a great climate. I guarantee you, we could grow the best cannabis here in Georgia if we were given the chance. The very best cannabis. <laughs> best cannabis. The best, so the best cannabis of all the cannabis. You'll always be hungry. You'll Can always be able to melt in the couch. It's wonderful. He doesn't drink. But the most perfect cannabis. God, if Donald yeah. Trump would just smoke a joint once in a while, we might have a little bit more peace in the dude, world. Um, yeah. He's all uppers. That dude is uppers. Like I swear to fucking God. I, I, bet he, I bet he smoked a joint with Kim Jong-un. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's his best friend, right? He loves him. They love each other. They write each other love letters. So I, don't write any of my friends, I don't write any of my friends' love letters. You yeah. know, my mouth I mean, was hanging open last night when he was like, uh, Kim Jong-un hated Obama. And I'm like, is that not a good thing? Yeah, it's kind of good when the terror, when the evil dictator doesn't like you. That's kind yeah, of a good thing. I mean, it's really it, a good thing. Um, and, and the other thing that I don't think Biden hit effectively enough on was his uh, relationship with Putin. You know, granted, the United States has passed sanctions against Russia. I mean, we we've always done that. It's not anything new. Um, but one of the things that he really should have hit on was the Helsinki summit when he was in the room with Putin and he was directly asked by a reporter to say tell the president of Russia not to get involved in our elections. And he said, I don't, he told me he wasn't, I don't know why he would be like that whole thing really. And it, and it seems like it happened 50 years ago. I, I know, I know. Like it happened so long ago, but it was just three years ago that that happened. And crazy. Biden should have hit on that. He should have said, when you were on the world stage, when you were in front of your counterpart in Russia, you did not have the nerve to tell him no. And that is not a Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall moment. 
That is a complete deferment to the president of Russia. And he should have been hammered on that uh, much more than he was. Yeah, I saw an interview with one of Trump's advisors uh, during that time. And Trump actually called him right after his private, remember his private meeting with Putin? So he had the public meeting and then yeah. right after he had the private meeting. Um, right after the private meeting, he calls his advisor and he says, yeah, I just I just spoke with Putin and he he said that if there's if if we did that, if Russia did that, I'd know about it and I don't know about it. So it must so it didn't happen and then Trump's like just believed him. Just was all I, this is just what is it about Republican presidents and looking into Vladimir Putin's eyes <laughs> that makes you believe him? I don't know I what it is because, because Bush said the same thing when he was president. He said, "I looked into his eyes." And I saw a man I could trust. It's like, really? <laughs> well, that's the guy you can trust? Oh my God, how no. many people has he poisoned? He's yeah, not I mean, a guy you can trust. The guy probably has plutonium on him right now. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, you know, I think, and I think Biden's, Biden's biggest mistakes during the debate was he didn't hit Trump on the things he should have hit him on. And then, of course, he did kind of meander on. And again, that, not having the interruptions and, and not right. having mics cut and things like that. that was a detriment to Biden. And I do wonder yeah. if elected um, how much that's going to affect him when it comes to things, because, you know, there are times when you're doing summits with China or with whoever, and you're on the ground for 12 hours a day. Right. Uh, many right. times you're speaking through interpreters. So you're having to be hyper-focused on what's going on. And think uh, it's different, like with the anticipation of, a debate like all day, probably you're at like a high stress functioning level until it actually happens. Well, the whole job of being president is a high stress. High stress. Level. Yeah. He's gonna be he's yeah. gonna be higher stressed if he wins this than he's ever been in his entire life, and uh, he's 78 years old, which is kind of weird. And why I I do think both parties really would do themselves um, a certain you know a good thing if excuse me in future elections we have millennials running. Like the in uh, in the libertarian ticket, we have a millennial for vice president. He's the first millennial to be on the ballot in all fifty states. Kind of cool, but uh, we do need younger representation from all of the parties. Um, now that doesn't mean make Tom Cotton your nominee in twenty twenty four Republicans. Don't do that because he's a terrible human being, and I know he's young, but don't do that. Uh, youngish is he? The, um, is he the senator from Arkansas? Oh, like he's a senator from Arkansas. And let me tell you why I brought him up because uh, it makes me want to blow my brains out. So if any of you guys have friends in Arkansas, whether you're Democrats or not, uh, God no, I have an old friend's father who hit him in the head with a hammer. Well, tell Hammerhead (laughs) that he needs to get out and vote for Ricky Dale Harrington, who is the libertarian. He's the only candidate on the ballot against Tom Cotton. And see, Tom Cotton was challenged to a debate uh, on their PBS and he thought, you know what? I don't need to do that. I'm not even going to show up and they'll probably just cancel it. And they didn't. They gave the, the Libertarian an hour and a half uh, of free airtime to be able to speak. This guy's a former prison chaplain. He believes in a public option on health care. He's very attractive to the left as well. So if you know anybody in Arkansas, get him out to vote against Tom Cotton and vote for Ricky Harrington because oh, that would be amazing. Tom Cotton's an abhorrent human being and he's a warmonger. And uh, I really, he, everybody says he's the favorite to be the 2024 nominee for president. And uh, you know what? If you just beat him now. That'd be great, right? Right. Or like at the end, at the end of the day, like 
that's a guy I'd like to be running against. <laughs> yeah. Have the last name Cotton, and you haven't attempted to change it. Well, you know, and it's it's he's just really uh, he is the stereotype Southern evangelical Republican who's super anti-gay, anti-trans, pro-war, pro-police. He's he's so you know he's basically. Um, I I honestly think he's worse than Trump. So if we could and just he's go super ahead, young. Yeah, he's in his. He's maybe fifty. Figure out how to like cougar him off to J.K. Rowling and then just get rid of him. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, um, so yeah, so I think uh, we need younger people in the conversation. Though we need people who understand what a meme is. You know, running for president. Mm-hmm. Um, we need people who understand what it's like raising children in the 21st century mm. um, because Joe Biden's kids are all in their you know 40s and whatever and and Trump's I mean Trump has a Trump has a teenager but that's because his wife's 40 years younger than him or right whatever it is. Um, and you know he's not really he's not really like a hands-on dad I don't think he's out playing catch with he's, probably, he's probably not a hands-on husband either I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's really hands-on anything <laughs> He's hands on. He's a hands on golf clubs kind of guy. I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm well, pretty sure. Hands on something. Yeah. Last last that. night it was it was in the Twitter sphere again. She he, he they held hands after the debate and then like as soon as they were about to walk off stage, she just rips her hand away again. Well, and, you know, it's all stupid. That's like such gossip bullshit. But it's just funny. Well, I would like to remind all the listeners and viewers here right now that once again, as you said earlier in the debate. Donald Trump made sure to remind people that his wife is more racist than him because he said, I'm the least racist person in this room, which means his wife, therefore, must be more racist than him. So Melania Trump, you heard it here first, is more racist than Donald Trump, according to Donald Trump. (laughs) Oh, okay. True, false, or misleading? Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a Trump quote from last night. Uh, he never did a thing except in 1994 when he did such harm to the black community and he called them super predators. He said it, super predators. True, false, or misleading? I know the answer. All right, go. What, do you, what is it? Uh, that's false. Okay, Kristen? Kristen? Oh, we can't hear you. We lost your vocal. What happened? There she is. I, I rescued the audio from the cat who just busted uh, into the room that you're in. Oh, thank you. No worries. Uh, true, false, or misleading? I was going to say true. Okay. The answer is false. Chase Oliver gets the point. Uh, Mr. Trump has said repeatedly that Mr. Biden used the word super predators in reference to criminals during a debate over the 1994 crime bill. Mr. Biden never used the term. However, it was used by Hillary Clinton, then first lady. The truth is, is it was actually Joe Biden in a wig. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, because, yeah, like. Could you imagine Joe Biden in like in the in a wig like in the Constitutional Convention in 1787? Come on, man! <laughs> You're like three fifths of a person. Come on, Come man! On, man. <laughs> oh man! Oh, man. down with that, Jack! <laughs> throws throws on the aviators. Yeah, um, he does. I'm not gonna lie. He rocks the aviators. He really does. He fr- it frames his face well. I can't wear aviators well. I wear I wear thinner specs than that. I don't know. He he does wear he does wear aviators well. He the man the man really knows how to order an ice cream cone. Have you ever seen him? I mean, 
The guy, have you ever seen the guy eat a cheeseburger? He's great. He's such an average, he's such an average guy. That Joe Biden, he's just like every other American guy who rides a train six hours to to and from work every day. <laughs> I, w- I will say it's playing to his advantage. I mean, m- like 99. He's uh, America's cookie grandpa. Yeah, 80% of like, so it's basically like angry grandpa versus like, like, come on, man, grandpa. Like, this is the race we're in. Like, this is the home stretch. Oh, no, in, no, in no. The, the, other, the other one is uh, you're you're not just somebody's crazy uncle. Who said that to Trump? Which, which Savannah, oh. Savannah Guthrie said that to him because of the things he tweets. And yes. I will say. Yes, that was so fantastic. So it's grandpa and crazy uncle. So I don't really have a preferred candidate among the two, really. Like, I mean, honestly, they're both not my favorite, but I will say if Biden does win one, there are a couple things that will be nice. One is not having to wake up to a Twitter dumpster fire every morning because he won't be tweeting. He won't be the one actually making the tweets. He'll have someone on his staff that makes the tweets. Right. Making very Um, wholesome tweets. Very, uh, very, very very wholesome tweets. And then the other good thing about it is we are going to get the Obama Biden memes back where it's like Biden's doing something stupid and Obama's like, Oh God. And so that (laughs) is going to be coming back. I guarantee you. Uh, that'll be something that I'm looking forward to. Um, the other thing is, is I really, really, I told my roommate this yesterday, I really just kind of want to see what a Trump concession speech looks like. <laughs> I really, really want to see. Because it, I, I am hope, like if on election night, there's just such an electoral certainty that Biden is going to win and Trump is going to lose. I really just want to see his concession because, you know, at this point he's been like, Biden is the worst candidate ever. He's the worst. He's terrible. He's a total loser. Complete fuck nut. He's terrible. He's awful. He's horrible. He's the worst. And I lost to him. <laughs> That's I I, I, I want to see Hillary Clinton's face. Lost. That's the other person I want to ever hear him say it. He'll say Biden won. And the other thing I want to say is that I want to see Hillary Clinton's face when she sees that Joe Biden's goofy oh. ass can beat Trump and she couldn't. She's going to be like, well, no, she's going to be like the fucking patriarchy, bro. Yeah. She's going to go take a long, long walk in the It is. Um, It would be nice to have a woman on the the stage. We could have had a woman. She's on the ballot in all 50 states. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, she was so much more qualified than he was. I never liked her in the first place. She's a fucking Monsanto tool. So, um, Hillary Clinton now. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I uh, I don't know what the world would be like with Hillary Clinton as president. I do know that I would probably not have as much fatigue in my brain um, because even the things I disagree with her on, they would be expected. Um, you would see them right. coming for the most part. I feel like there'd be a lot less spontaneity. I feel like you're going to have a lot less spontaneity if Joe Biden is president because He's an older guy. He's he's going to be more reserved. He looks he looks like a central casting president. And I do think he's going to defer a lot of this to staff. And, uh, you know, I heard that he's already vetting a couple of Republicans to serve in his cabinet, which people are freaking out about. And then I, re- and then I remind them that, you know, Obama had Gates. Uh, Bush had a Democrat on his cabinet. It's been kind of the norm up until Donald Trump. That's the thing. So many norms have been broken the last three years. It's going to be weird going back to normal, right? Right. 
Um, you, you brought up uh, mm-hmm. how would the world be different today if if it was Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, and I, this is this is actually an interesting thought experiment for me because I'm going back and I'm going, okay, well, what has Donald Trump actually done? And the more I think about it, like you know, we talked about the the whole China deficit and the trade war, and like at the end of the day, it's just this big circle, and nothing nothing substantive has actually been moved. The only things that have been moved are our day to day dramatics. And, you know, I think I think Americans are happier not knowing what's going on in, you know, behind the scenes every five seconds. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. I think maybe this is a wake up call for all of us to be more aware of what's happening in our Democratic Republic on a day to day basis. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think Trump's really like I don't, what under, about, I, don't, I don't, what has he done? What has he What about done? his stochastic terrorism and stirring up all of these groups, the neo-Nazis? Like, is that a good You're thing? You're right. The only that thing- they're more visible to us or is it a bad thing? Right, they, I think, I think it's, I think it's a good thing at the end of the day. I think at the end of the day, what the, the, what did you say? Stochastic? Stochastic, as in Sto- like stoking- Ah, okay, stochastic terrorism. Okay, so basically what Trump has done, instead of draining the actual swamp on the hill, he's drained all the racists out into the open. So they're easier for kill shots? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, that's what I was asking. Like, is it better that we know who they are? Well, my thing is is that, uh, you know, I think think what Trump has done is he's given uh, this certain element on the right uh, the leeway to kind of come out of the shadows. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, you see in Charlottesville, like that kind of stuff. I mean, there was racism certainly before Donald Trump. There's going to be racism after Donald Trump. Right. Um, I'm not the only person I think that remembers that there were marches in Washington, D.C. where there were giant posters of Obama with a bone through his nose. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, there, there, there has been a long strain of racism in this country. Now, what we've had now is we've had a president who um, doesn't really call them out the way that other presidents would have. And I and I right. will say this, too. Like, um, I am all for the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm all for the criminal justice reform. Um, and I don't think up until recently Joe Biden has voiced enough opposition to the violent elements on his side of the political aisle. Um, I don't think the left in general really has addressed it the way they needed to. But at the same time, neither has the right, because uh, when they stoke that fear, when they stoke those emotions, it gets their base out to vote. And, uh, you know, I think it's very easy to say, I support all of the movement. I don't support the people who are on the fringes of the movement who are um, causing violence or destruction. And you can say the same thing on the limited government right wing side of things. Like I can support people who are limited government. I support people who support the right to bear arms, support gun owners. Right. I don't support militias who are planning to kidnap duly elected governors of the state. Like that's right. that's easy to say, right? That should be easy it for a politician to say. Easy to say. It should be easy to say. And uh, but at the same time, you have just this—it's this inability to want to call out your supporters because when you do, it's going to hurt you negatively. Well, and, but you should—you should call out your supporters. You should be holding them honest. Yeah, and I and I think that's 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 a major. I think this is where Trump is uh, really such a liar, right? Like, how many times has he been asked about QAnon and and his supporters being a part of QAnon, and how many times has he said he doesn't? 
in the Proud Boys and how much how many times he said he doesn't know what that is or or what they're about and and he does he absolutely mm-hmm. knows he just pretends he doesn't to keep this little to keep like it's almost like he's providing the breadcrumbs for them and you know we've got yeah. the, the the majority and of the population is like very against pedophilia they're very against like who's not like this is the thing like since when do since when does well, the right wing since when does the right wing get to be against pedophilia and all yeah. of a sudden the Democrats and the left wing is for it? Like that is the biggest horse shit I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, that's that, I mean, that is total shit. I mean, and the thing is, is it's like, you're right. Uh, okay. So you're okay. They're very against pedophilia. Yeah. So is most of America, but most of America doesn't think that Tom Hanks is at the top of the food chain when it comes to the sex criminal rings. Like that's the thing. It's like, and, or, or, the other big QAnon thing is that they believe that JFK Jr. was still alive and that he was at Trump rallies and that he was going to oh. announce since uh, it was on the 17th. So it's been about a week now. Oh my God. That's amazing. But they believe that he was going to somehow come out and he was going to be Trump's running mate. I had <laughs> read this on QAnon board. And so that he was going to replace Mike Pence as the running mate, even though people have already been voting and the ballots already printed, all this stupid stuff. They're getting out there. Holy that's, shit. That's crazy, right? And so like JFK Jr., um, my favorite thing was is the night he was supposed to appear, a bunch of JFK Jr. Twitter handles came up. One's like, hey, I'm in LaGuardia. I need a lift. <laughs> no, I need I need La, no, I'm at LaGuardia. I need a ride. Someone said I needed a lift. Question mark. Because you haven't been alive since and so I just, you know, and, and on, so we, ha- so let me just say this. We have a congresswoman. Well, she will be a congresswoman. She's a candidate right now. Her name is Marjorie Taylor Greene up here in Northwest Georgia. She is the chief QAnon believer here in the state of Georgia. Oh, I've really? seen videos about her. She full-throatedly believes in QAnon. And now Kelly Loeffler, the woman running for Senate, has like is like touting her endorsement. It's like, what universe are we living in where a sitting United States senator is like, I'm going to tout this crazy conspiracy theory ladies endorsement. We're going to ride together to a thing in a Hummer with a giant Trump flag on the back. And it's like, it's so bizarro. Like I do feel like we've kind of stepped into it. Like I feel like maybe, you know, I'm a big comic book guy, like maybe two parallel universes have smashed into each other. And that's where we're at right now. Like we're in this world of like, uh, just everything is like up is down and black is white. And it's just so weird. And I feel like maybe if Biden wins, granted his policies, I'm not agreeing with, but it will be kind of normalizing to a degree. And uh, I do think we're seeing it. You're going to see a massive blue wave. Like I am realistic. You're about to see a lot of things change. Um, do right. I want Lindsey Graham to lose? Yeah. Yeah. Do I want Mitch McConnell to lose? Uh-huh, sure. Yeah. Like, I don't think, I think, I think, oh. what do you think about Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Kristen. We'll, we'll hit that in a second. Go ahead. You had a thought. Oh, no, no, no. It was just a rare bit of news that I read. It came out like six hours ago about how they were questioning McConnell. Apparently, he has like bruises and bandages all over his fingers. And he said, Do not Google McConnell. Don't Google McConnell hands. It's gross. What happened? What's going on? So they look bruised. He has bandages all over it. Someone's like, Oh, his pimp hand's not very strong anymore, is it? Uh, It's, yeah, if you just Google Mitch McConnell hands, it's going to come up. It's kind of, ugh. 
Uh, I saw that too when I was like, explain it. like I, I fell sick. down the driveway once with the recycling bin and I tore up all of my fingers so his constant bullshit is like starting to finally gangrene his body <laughs> um, but no how do I feel about the Mitch McConnell and the and the Lindsey Graham races yeah I, like do you I think do you like, think yeah go ahead sorry I feel like McConnell's probably safer yeah I agree. in his race than Lindsey Graham Lindsey Graham's been outspent by, or outraised by double dude I love, I love the fact that Lindsey Graham's going, what's going on with Act Blue? Who are all these fuck? Who, where's all this money coming from? It must be fucking, you know, he's, he's trying to like create this conspiracy when in fact, like it's literally it's every Facebook. every fucking citizen it's Facebook. who is terrified of yeah. you. Because well, also- never, never in history have so many people had access to the marketing ability to, to bring in money for a local campaign. Well, also, right? it's just, it's also, that in four years ago, he was the head of the Judiciary Committee. He held up Merrick Garland and he said, oh. if it happens, use my words against me. He said that after Kavanaugh too, after right. Kavanaugh. Yeah, he said it before Kavanaugh and then and he said it and after. And so this is, this is people using his words against him. That's why it's so easy to fundraise against him because he's been shown to be a, you know, basically a hypocrite. Yeah. And so it, right. his, his the, opponent the, is raking in the money. Now, here's the thing. His opponent raked in $54 million dollars in one month. That is enough to buy everyone in South Carolina a sandwich and a Coke. So <laughs> Wait, why just, his opponent? His name's Jamie Harrison. Okay. I believe is his name. Yeah. But uh, so he literally has enough money to buy everybody a sandwich and a Coke um, <laughs> and could do that to every voter. And, and that's, I mean, do we really need $54 million for one race in South Carolina? But I guess but it, we do. if he lose, if, if Jamie Harrison doesn't win with that advantage, then either a money, doesn't matter as much as we think it does, and there there are cases to be made for that. Um, or B, Trump, Trump, yeah. they don't know how to use the money properly. Yeah, well, Trump Trump yeah had less raise than Hillary, but he got a lot more free media because he way more free media. Um, and then of course there's the incumbency factor for for Lindsey Graham, uh, uh, Miss Miss Lindsey G. Um, you know, uh, let's yeah, there's not a. Yeah, so so five thirty eight, five thirty eight still has uh, Lindsay at a seventy seven to twenty three. And again, just for those of you listening, that the whole point is that this model is based on incumbency. It's based on polling. It's based on economic data. So they do a lot to put in this model, and then they run it based on all these data points forty thousand times. And in that simulation, Lindsey Graham wins 77 times, Jamie Harrison wins 23 times. Yeah, mostly so, it's uh, it's the him getting outspent, you know, he's just not getting the money that uh, Jamie Harrison is, and you know, right now, Lindsey Graham is diving deep, he's going on Fox News, asking for money, there's he's climbing into every closet he can to get some money, um, and so that's just where Lindsey Graham is, he's right there in the closet with no money. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's, that's his problem. And, uh, but as far as Kentucky goes, I do think, so here's an interesting thing. You got McConnell running against Amy McGrath in Kentucky and, uh, Brad Barron is the libertarian there right now. He's polling at about 8%. And the Democrats have been saying that if he polls from eight to 10%, they'll be able to pick up a seat. And so now you've been seeing mailers going out all over the state to conservatives talking about how much of more conservative Brad Barron is and how he's better on these issues and on the deficit and debt. And wouldn't you know it, it's the Democratic Party who's sending those mailers out to all the Republican voters to try to convince them that maybe the libertarian is a better choice for them. Um, which, wow. you know, as a libertarian, I'll That's take all the free stuff right, you want to give right. us. 
Um, thanks for the free press. Right. Um, now, one thing I do think is weird is that on those mailers, they talked about how he supports ending qualified immunity and ending the drug war, which actually makes him more to the left uh, than Amy McGrath herself because she's not really as firm on those issues. So it, it, it's odd to me that they put those and not just like I love guns and smaller government on the on the mailer. But right. uh, and I got the greatest mailer ever, you guys. So well, what do you got? Kentucky's rough. Kentucky's Kentucky. So uh, John Ossoff is running for Senate. And uh, he's running against David Perdue. And, uh, you know, he's a filmmaker who did work for Al Jazeera. And so now they're trying to tie him to terrorism. So, like, if you see, see here, that shit fucks me. Says, up John Ossoff has ties that support terrorism. And then it shows, like, the Kuwaiti flag and Al Jazeera right there, the Al Jazeera. And then it shows, like, all oh, the Hamas and terrorists. But this is the weirdest part, right? So I don't know. I have to try to do this the right way. So you see how it's like his family? Oh, fiction. But reality. They're all terrorists. Oh Get the God. fuck out of here. Now, this mailer right here, these wow. things cost like over a dollar. expensive mailer. If you're just listening to this podcast on audio, you need to go to YouTube and check it out on video because this is fucking nuts. So you, you remember if you're like in your 40s, if you were a little girl and you used to buy stickers and you would turn them one way and they looked like one thing and then you would turn them yeah, the other way and they looked exactly like exactly what it is. So, yeah. So, like on one part of the mailer, like when you have it pointed one way, it shows him with his family in front of an American flag and he's got a little camera and it's like re- fiction is that he was just a f- nice filmmaker. And then reality, all the kids turn into terrorists and the American flag turns in the Al Jazeera or in the, the Hamas flag. It's like reality. He's a dirty terrorist. And uh, that's, these things cost like $2 a piece. Yeah, dude, those are not cheap. And if it was sent to me and my roommate. The only reason they would know us is because we voted in a Republican primary in the last 10 years. <laughs> so I'm assuming it went to every person who voted in the Republican primary in the last wow. 10 years. Yeah. So you're, uh, a, you're, you're a high value mark, according to the Republican Party. I'm on both their mailing lists because I'm involved <laughs> in politics. So I get moveon.org texts and then I also get Team Trump texts. And now I just, just, now I just message the name Joe Jorgensen back. And I've gotten people being like, okay, we'll just unsubscribe you from this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, it's crazy how much money is going into these races, how competitive some of these races are. Um, the fact that the Republicans feel that they need to spend that kind of money on that kind of a flashy mailer shows them that they worry about the John Ossoff race, which again, if you're worrying about Republican races – in uh, Georgia, the point of where you're spending money and the national candidates are coming out to campaign, that's a bad sign for the Republican Party and a good sign for Democrats. They're yeah. going to be well. I, I, I think you're right. I think you're going to see a, a giant blue wave. But I think the problem, as you said, is that once we see that blue wave, we're not going to see the results that we're that the blue unless you're are looking for. Hold them honest. That's what you have to do. You have to so, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you a weird question. Um, so. Georgia has always typically gone Republican. The, la- the last Democrat presidential candidate to win was Bill Clinton in 1992. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Clinton won Georgia. Yeah, 1992. 92. Okay, all right. Yeah, taking votes away from Bush. That was the Perot spoiler effect, according to them. Which is right. Clinton won Georgia. <laughs> so, is it a condition that has to do with the fact that it's south of the Mason-Dixon? Because most of Indiana typically goes Democrat because they're poor. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and they're Georgia historically is typically poor, but historically goes Republican. So, so I'm what, trying to. So what you have down here is you have a combination of uh, 
we have the rural communities who are typically more red in the country. Um, and then you also have a large evangelical base of voters here in the state of Georgia, which typically are more socially conservative, uh, anti-abortion, uh, anti-gay marriage, these kinds of things. But isn't that relatively new when it comes to politics? Like I mean, that sitting on the Republican side? Well, yeah, you have to think the Democratic Party has had a major shift in the state of Georgia in the last 20 years. So, okay. um, so uh, I became a libertarian in 2010 when I went to Gay Pride. And the only political party that was there doing outreach and marching was the Libertarian Party because the Republican candidate for governor did not want to scare away socially conservative voters uh, in 2010 when he was running for governor. And in 2014, the same thing happened. Uh, so it wasn't until 2018 that you had a Stacey Abrams marching in Atlanta Pride. Uh, at that point, the Democratic Party in the state of Georgia had moved socially to the left, whereas they used to be more traditionally to the to the center, to the center right, right uh, conservatively in terms of uh, social issues. So you don't have the, the Zell Millers. It's like you had Zell Miller. He was a senator here for a long time. Um, and then in 2000 in- He was uh, a mayor. Four, he was a mayor too, right? Yeah. And then in 2008, he endorsed George W. Bush because he said the Democratic Party started moving to the left and I'm conservative and I'm a, you know this, that, and the other. And so you have this, uh, and you even have center left- people who moved to the right, like Joe Lieberman endorsed John McCain. Uh, those kind of old school people are kind of dying off. There's the new left, which is younger, more activist. Uh, and that is growing in the state of Georgia, especially in our urban areas of Atlanta, which is why Georgia's starting to become a swing state again. It's because now we have a new crop of young activist voters, uh, in addition to the base that we already have here in Atlanta, which is always, I mean, the fifth district where I ran for Congress is probably the top two or three bluest districts in the whole country mm. um, in terms of registration and voter turnout. So, um, and you does know. that include like a university population? Oh yeah. Well, you have university of Georgia, you have Georgia state university, Georgia tech. Um, so, and you, you have smaller pockets of liberalism, you know, not liberalism, but of progressivism uh, in those areas. But once you get out of um, the Metro area, it definitely the concern, the switch to conservative is very noticeable. Right. I, it's it's I, hard I, and fast. It's well, hard and fast. I went up to LJ a couple of weeks ago to go apple picking up in the country. So <laughs> beautiful. I needed fresh air, whatever. Oh, fall. Uh-huh. Went and bought some fudge and all the good stuff up there. Got me some apple pies, all that good stuff. So um, I'm up in LJ and of course, everywhere I see is Trump signs, big Trump signs, like big Trump signs, like five by 10 foot Trump signs, like big, huge signs. And then when you get back down where I live on my street, other than my Jorgensen signs in my front yard, it's literally like Biden, 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 Biden. There's no Trump signs in my yard or in my neighborhood. In your neighborhood, right. And so it's one across the street. And so it, it just it's it's such a clear divide. And and then there are, you know, uh, so it, it it's been weird watching the the changes happen. And then, of course. There is a third party movement. The Libertarian Party of Georgia is actually one of the more active state parties. We regularly run candidates. Uh, we, we like to push the discussion. Uh, when John Mons ran for governor in the debates, he kind of forced the eventual winner to say, OK, if a bill comes on my desk that allows for Sunday sales of alcohol, I'll sign it. Oh, it was because we pushed that in the conversation. Um, and so the it's like, wait, the Libertarians did that? Yeah, well, the libertarian John Mons, he was running for governor. And in the debate, he said, you know, I support Sunday sales of alcohol, and I think you should too. And if it comes to a runoff, you know, a lot of my voters will be looking to you to see if you support Sunday sales of alcohol. Will you support Sunday sales? 
And the eventual winner, uh, Nathan Deal, said, if it comes to my desk, I'll sign it. Um, and so he See, got... And, and this is, I think this is what people don't really understand about the value of third parties. Because I think third parties get a bad name because of the spoiler effect. And if, for those of you who don't know the spoiler effect, as we've covered a couple of times, is the idea that if you have a third party candidate, they're going to spoil it for the person that you actually, that, that could actually win because the, you're throwing your vote away because this person can actually win. That in quotes. So mm -hmm. that's the spoiler effect. But... What the third parties actually do, what they bring to the table is an ability to, as you said earlier, sharpen. They're like a stone sharpener. You have to have better arguments rather than just falling into your party's line. And that's what I see. Like, that's the thing that frustrates me so much right now about both the Democratic and the Republican Party. Like, I can't fall in line with either because. Every conversation is talking points and it's all just, it's like, this is the dem, this is the blue policy, this is the red policy. And if you have any thoughts or ideas that deviate from the central theme of any of our policies, then somehow you are against the party. And it's like, this is not only, not only is that bullshit, it's dangerous. Well, and, and uh, I, I also say that, you know, another benefit of the third parties is that they bring ideas to the table, to the mainstream. I like to tell people all the time that, you know, uh, imagine a river, right? Before there was a river there, there was a stream that carved the path that created the path for the river to flow. And I like to say that libertarians, when I say we're ahead of the mainstream, we're literally ahead of that mainstream. We are the stream that comes before the river. We're the people who 35 years ago were saying, end the drug war now, uh, gay rights now, uh, you know, end the wars overseas. Let's end our right. footprint, stop being the world's policeman, right? And, uh, and those terms, like stop being the world's policeman, that is now in the vernacular of, of the voting people. And, and, and you know, Legalization. You, all, you also have to thank you have to thank South Park for that as well. But I'm sure those guys are libertarians. So go on. They are libertarians. In fact, <laughs> Trey Parker and Matt Spoon are both very avid libertarians. Um, and so uh, they'll be the first to tell you that Republicans and Democrats are bullshit too. I'm sure. And uh, and so this is the thing: is like we third parties. In addition to the fact that we have hundreds of libertarians uh, serving in, in different roles all over the country and different levels of government, uh, we also provide the means to create those mainstream arguments that will be the mainstream in 10 and 20 years. We were the people that are the we're the brave people who come out ahead of it and, and we shout to the heavens and we say, this is the way it's supposed to be. Don't you see? Don't you see? And then in 20 years, people come around and they say, oh, yeah, we, we, we saw. And uh, and that's something that I think is very valuable to the political discussion. It and is. One of the reasons why I'm happy to be a third party voter. I tell people, even if I didn't win my election, uh, I, I won different metrics of victory some people learned about libertarianism for the first time. That's a metric of victory. Um, I got to talk about issues of criminal justice reform and hold uh, and hold police accountable and hold other candidates' feet to the fire on those issues. That is something that I consider a measure of victory. So right. uh, you don't have to win the election to actually win the war of ideas over right. time. Well, no, but this and idea like you that said, the you opened up and you said certain things, and now other people feel that they can say that same thing. That's Right. Huge. Right. And it, it's hard because, I mean, you know, libertarians 20 years ago uh, were fighting the fights that that modern um, politics are taking on today. And that that's that's extraordinary. But that's a hard fight. That's so tough. Like to 
to like to be it's almost like you're the one that is stepping out and standing up for things that the minority you know the minority ideas that are actually the right you know ethical moral choices but then you're getting punched and beat against the rocks but you know those ideas then are being absorbed by the major parties later that's got to hurt a little like how do you how did libertarians deal with that well, I do tell my friends who are Trump and Biden supporters that come uh, after the election when if your candidate loses, uh, come see me. I'm very good at consoling once our candidate loses because I'm used to it. I'm used to my candidate not winning the election. Uh, it, it is something that is I mean, it is something that is true. And, and I've been so, so, so you're saying Trump could never be a libertarian because there's way too much losing happening. Yeah, I don't think he could because there's so much not winning that happens. <laughs> uh, Charlie Sheen also could not be a libertarian because there's a lot of not winning going on. Um, <laughs> but it's it's uh, you know, it's something that we have to over time realize that we are guiding the discussion somewhat. We are pushing people in certain directions. Right. Um, and I think it's not just libertarians. It's the Green Party. It's independents as well. I mean, look at uh, the state of Minnesota. Their politics changed after Jesse Ventura was governor there. Right now in Indiana, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Indiana politics. Are you guys in Indiana? You mentioned Indiana. Uh, My so uncle's he- running for judge this term. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, there's a guy, Donald Rainwater, running for governor. He's a libertarian. He's actually at the top or really close in second place in the polls right now. Um, and he's really, really throwing a wrench in the electorate. It's kind of crazy because it's like, vote. For, you know, he's telling Republicans, don't vote for the Republican, vote for the two Donalds. You know, vote for me, Donald Rainwater, and you can go vote for Donald Trump for president. But, uh, and it, it's... It's crazy to see that it's actually upending the whole political discussion in Indiana. It's changing the dynamic of the race. Uh, and we could have our first libertarian governor. And if that happens, you're going to start seeing real changes happening in state houses all over the country. So, uh, even though, yeah, this is what needs to happen. And this is what this is what my dumb ass has been saying for a while is that libertarians need to focus on state and local governments. And if they can start to capture state and local government, they can move into the world stage rather than depending upon, uh, as you said earlier, the uh, the organization for presidential debates to get on right, stage. Right. You need to win the hearts and the minds of the people, and that's going to move it forward. And then we're going to have libertarians starting to bring rate choice voting into the cities and states. And then, you know, hopefully, hopefully, like I hope you guys – like I, I, I love you, Chase, and I, and I and I, but I, I have I'm skeptical of organizations in general, mm-hmm. and I, and and as organizations gain power, they tend to lose their grassroots motivation. So I worry, of course, that you know if libertarians start to gain power, then then they will start to lose those grassroots, uh, you know, uh, belief oriented politics. But at the same time there's a third party and a third party shakes things up and it makes things sharper. So if we start to see those state and local governments start to bring in libertarians and then, you know, start to improve the dialogue within that conversation, we can see real change. We can see big things happen like ranked choice voting at the local and state level, which can then move up to the federal level. I'm, I'm hopeful. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very hopeful. And I, and I really believe that people like you and and people who are pushing this envelope can get things done. Um, but also I'm a little jaded and I feel like shit stuck in a system that that's not well, moving. It's been a, uh, it's been 160 years since we've had a third party president because the last one we had was Abraham Lincoln, who was the third Republican party at the time. And so, uh, I think, 
you know, it's about time that we do get this new political organization built. We start moving ourselves forward. And uh, yeah, maybe it's about time that sure. we do uh, replace one of the old parties. Maybe, maybe we don't immediately, maybe we're not a third party country for very long. That's what happened last time. We had the Whigs, the Democrats and the Republicans. And then very quickly, the Whigs went into the dustbin of history. Well, uh, Maybe yeah. that happens. For sure. Even countries that are supposedly more progressive than us. Like if you look at France right now, it's a, it's a shit show. So, Well, it's a shit show everywhere because it's 2020 and the COVID around. It's uh, that's the way it is. But uh, the COVID doesn't make you go after people who are using marijuana and try mm-hmm. to find them for their past crimes. What was the second thing he did? He wants to outlaw homeschooling because yeah. he's such a racist. It's Sorry, weird. I'm not Fran- a Macron fan. Uh, that's all good. And uh, you know, speaking of cougars, uh, <laughs> I'm talking about Macron wife uh, earlier, cougarizing oh, right. with J.K. Rowling. But uh, um, <laughs> but let me just say this. You know, France. Um, you know, people are always like, and this is something Joe Jorgensen said, you know, they have the, everybody talks about how great it is that they have the 35 hour work week. It's like, well, if, you know, we had another country paying for all of our military expenditures to keep us safe. Maybe we could afford a 35 hour work week here too. Um, and then, you know, of course everybody loves France, but everybody forgets the fact that like literally there's been riots in the streets for months against the, for years against the government now. Years, like they've had years. the yellow vests against the government for a long time. We don't hear about that stuff. Just like we don't hear about Hong Kong. We're kind of isolated over here in our little bubble here yeah. in America. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not hunky dory everywhere. It's it's America's, no, America's it's just part of the world. Yeah, no, I I agree completely, and I, I think, but you know, here I am. I'm like, oh, you know, I actually respect the fact that people stand up to their government in France. Like I, you know, and we that's need more a, of that here. Well, you're right, and so there's there's you you mentioned earlier, and this is this is a tough political conversation. This is a tough political conversation to have, and and when it comes to protest and violence, because France has always been a violent uh, uh, group, um, the not the proletariat, but yeah, the proletariat. After you the proletariat cut the has always been violent. heads off, everything is less violent. Yeah, right. They're, they're coming right. back from the guillotine. Exactly, but it's always been exactly, and it's been okay because of that. But like. They respect there's there's a kind of respect between the government and the people, um, and when there are violent protests, which there are often in France, it's not this like here in America when we see violent protests, it's like either you have to take the moral high ground, or you have to immediately be on the side of the oppressed. There's no in between. You can you either have to take the the moral violence is bad in all accounts on all occasions, or you have to be like property. Yeah, right. Or you have to be like, no, these people have been oppressed, and the only way the system will listen is if there is violence in the streets. And so those are two very different ideas. Um, and I don't think there's it's one or the other. Yeah, I think uh, you know the, the the path that I've taken. You, know, I've marched in dozens of marches. I've participated these things. Uh, and the thing I tell people uh, all the time is you can support the, the nonviolent movement for change and things like that and still be able to call it the violence because what you do is you say the violence here is actually the distraction from what we're doing. What it's doing is it's taking the ball off the eye of justice and it's pointing it towards the car that's on fire over there. And that's actually a distraction. And, uh, you know, I am a I'm a person who's a student of uh, the Bayard Rustin School of Protest. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Bayard Rustin. He was a he was a student of Gandhi's who 
when he met Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King still had armed guards at the door, and he was the guy who told Martin Luther King, the only way you're really going to get change for civil rights is if you march without violence, without guns, and you have to, peaceful nonviolent resistance is the way to change. I'm still a student of that. I believe that, but I understand what you're saying. And I, and I think, I think what I, I tell people all the time, uh, maybe instead of uh, focusing on what France is doing, we should be focusing on what the students in Hong Kong are doing. They are being defensive. They are not being offensive, committing violence. They're protecting themselves and each other. They're banding together. And uh, at the end of the day, we do have to recognize that much of the time when violence happens in this country, it is because the police have escalated it to, to an area where it, it didn't need to be. You know, things were very peaceful in Atlanta when the nights uh, the protests were going on until the tear gas started getting launched. And of course, when your eyes are burning and you're, you're having trouble breathing, you're aggravated and you're already upset, that's going to increase emotional, uh, you know, turmoil. And then we have people getting like pulled out of cars, getting tased. It's like, of course, emotions are going to run high. And it's responsibility of police to de-escalate. And uh, I don't I feel like that. that's what's going on. And It should be, but they're not trained in de-escalation. Right. Well, and, and, and so many people on the right think it's the responsibility of the citizen to de-escalate. And I think there's, there's a fundamental misunderstanding between the populace and the police state. Um, and it's very weird because there's, you know, the right, the, the right traditionally has been against authoritarian governmental top-down oppression. And now all of a sudden, um, you know, whenever it pops up in oppressed communities who are not the white majority, all of a sudden that is forgotten. And I think that's, well, that's right, a very... Okay for me, but not for them. Right. It's okay for me, but not... Exactly. Exactly. And Remember so this Tim is McGee with her uh, tinted windows, with her guns in her car, and uh, who? Princess McGee. I call her Tits McGee. You know who Tits I'm McGee? talking about. No, so who are you talking about? <laughs> so T who's so, Tits McGee? I want to know. She sounds lovely. <laughs> She's got guns. <laughs> I mean, that's impressive. Um, but I think uh, you know, don't tread on me is a thing that people say all the time. And it is, it is a calling card of the libertarian, don't turn on me. But I like to say, don't turn on anyone. That should really be more where we're at, is uh, don't turn on anyone's liberty. I don't care who you are. And uh, you're right. It is easier when it's happening to people that don't look like you, that don't think like you. It's easier to dehumanize. This is another problem we have with the left versus right dynamic. It's the dehumanization of our opposition. Um, yes. if you just, if you just view all people on the right as terrible racist scum and all the people on the left as lazy, shiftless hippies, like that's, it's easier don't forget, to, don't forget bisexual. Oh, well, yeah, that too. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and so for all of that, it's like, it, it makes it easier to dehumanize your opposition. And I like to try to remind people that even the police who I'm protesting are human beings, right. you know, I, I understand that they have a family that they go to at the end of the day however flawed their job or what they do or their training may be, they're still human beings. And, and when you dehumanize your opposition, you actually make yourself the asshole. Right. Like it, 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 it really becomes hard to display your point. You have to, you have to um, send a message with empathy and love. And that's the only way you're really going to get your point across to people who don't necessarily agree with you at one point. Like if I told everybody who didn't vote libertarian, you don't vote libertarian, you're a stupid asshole. 
Well, how many people do you think I'm going to get to vote libertarian? Right? You right. you make you make a great point and and but the alternate point is that human beings in throughout history have never won anything by being lovely uh humanists, right? We've we've only um been successful by owning, raiding, raping and pillaging, uh, raping and pillaging, taking, taking, taking and that is the colonizer perspective. So if you are uh, looking at it from that perspective, and then you are an oppressed community. The idea of uh, abiding by, you know, Martin Luther King or Gandhi's uh, uh, approach seems pretty frustrating and futile because mm-hmm. you're like, well, yes, maybe we'll gain some small victories here and there, but ultimately, the the system is so insidious that. We'll we'll get something, but we're not gonna we're we're never gonna get our due. So so Martin Luther King said, "Riots are the language of the unheard," right? And uh, I think if people who are serious about wanting to end the violence and end the strife that's going on in our communities, if they were really serious about that, they would start listening, because right. that's what's not happening right now. Right. It's, 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 it is the language of the unheard. And uh, agree with it or disagree with it or their or their motives or what's going on. At the end of the day, there is violence happening in the world because people are not listening to each other. And, uh, and we could still have competition and we could still have winner take all and I'm the king of the hill. And you would still have winners and losers in the world. But what we would have is we would have less violence and strife while we're doing it. And that's one of the aspects of human evolution that I think we're starting to grow beyond. And I think as technology happens and we become even more interconnected with one another and the world keeps growing smaller and smaller, we're going to start having to see how futile it is to run that colonizer aspect and that and that whoever can hit the hardest should be on top uh, and start really becoming a community that revolves around um, empathy and, and shared ideals and, and principles. That is where I think humanity is going um, if we can just survive long enough not to blow each other up before we get there. And that's the real challenge it, in the world. That, that is the real challenge in the world because that's what, you know, when you talk when you, when you talk to uh, folks who are futurists and when you talk to folks who have studied uh, a lot of ideas about advanced civilizations, <laughs> we, we are at the precipice. This is the point at which we make or break. And so... Um, I think that your perspective and and what you're bringing to the table actually is exactly what we need to be doing. Uh, forgive me for playing devil's advocate because I enjoy it, but I do uh, I do see the 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 argument to that side is that you know winner take all and fuck you for being vulnerable. And so you know I I think this is a debate for another day, but I definitely think that. Uh, what you bring to the table and, and your ideas, um, you know, I, I think those are the winners if we're going to be a society that uh, lasts for uh, another 500 oh. to 1,000 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, uh, you know, it's uh, it's crazy how the world works that way and, and uh, how it, yeah. it seems like the negative is what keeps going. Yeah, times. but you got to um, keep fighting. That's the thing. You got to keep it up and keep fighting. Well, we got to keep fighting. We got to keep talking. We got to keep bringing these ideas out there and we got to keep sharing these ideas. And so I hope, uh, Chase, you will join us for many more Cocktails and Calamity. Um, I think you are a superb analyst and uh, we really need your voice in this fight. 
All right. I, well, it was a pleasure ha- uh, being on, and yeah, I'd love to come back sometime. And it's a pleasure speaking with both of you. As the globe continues to shrink and the power of information screams forward, every action, every idea has a chance to catch fire and set the world ablaze. In this time of great uncertainty, we look boldly in the face of calamity with cocktail in hand. Join us every single week as we discuss the technology, politics, and social issues facing humanity's global future. If you'd like bonus content, our weekly newsletter, or an opportunity to join us live, simply go to cocktailsandcalamity.com to join the movement. You can find us live on Facebook at Cocktails and Calamity every Friday at 5 p.m. You can also watch or listen anytime on YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Join us live, engage in the conversation. We'll see you there.